And we are back on the show with owner of Revolution Pro Wrestling, Andy Quilden. Andy, thanks for uh, coming on this week. No problem, anytime. And thank you for having me back. No, thank you. Always great talking to you. Um, before we get into your uh, career, obviously, I wanted to talk about running a wrestling company and, and a wrestling school is your full-time job. And obviously, the pandemic has been tricky for everyone, especially business owners, both small and large. And obviously, we had the news this past week that Ring of Honor is going to be scaling back its business. You know, we also had the news about Shimmer as well and other promotions have been suffering. I mean, we're far, far from out of this, but, you know, with the restrictions being, you know, what they are in the UK, you managed to run a bunch of tapings for your VOD service, and then now you've pretty got a pretty regular schedule of shows around the UK. How has the the last year uh, been for you? Um, it's been the, the in terms of professionally, I think probably the worst. Um, the last uh, since July, it's been it's been crazy, and it's been the best. But uh, the 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 whole pandemic, um, losing absolutely everything kind of your almost your identity i think when we did the the empty arena tapings um people were themselves for a few days um at a time which i think was kind of um but especially the first ones it meant so much to so many people um you know refinding their identity because for so long you you know you live a life which is revolving around work which is involved and i'm sure again i'm sure it's the same for everyone you know it's revolving around work routine um and it's just pulled away from you and you don't know if you're ever going to get it back and you kind of forget what it's like um you know being involved um in in a in a you know in the entertainment industry um for so long it really felt like um you know, I always say wrestling's the bastard son of entertainment, um, but, you know, entertainment was forgotten, I believe, as a whole in the pandemic. Um, and, you know, when entertainment's forgotten, wrestling's forgotten even further behind, you know. So it, it was tough. Um, it was financially tough. We had a lot of money, um, you know, committed into things such as advertising campaigns, flights, which were booked, which, um, you know, we could only get flight credits on. So, for example, um the rescheduled shows happening this weekend, but we had um, MVP booked for a show in May and his flight was booked um, and we were able to get um, a credit back on his flight, but it was only for his name. And obviously he's in WWE now. So, um, you know, it's just money down the drain. And obviously that money came from people's ticket sales and some people were very, very kind and kind of, um, you know, kept their faith in us um, and kept hold of their tickets for the rearranged dates. But then obviously you still then have to pay for the bill for those shows and it's kind of that knock-on effect you know um and loans being repaid vat deferrals being um having to be paid and you know it's um it's, it's tough and we're still not out of it now um but we've been um you know i think very fortunate in the sense of we have uh you know I spent a lot of time doing a lot of planning to make sure we could get back. We called it the back to business tour um, and to make sure that we could get back in full swing at full pace. Um, you know, the only way we know how really, because I felt like, you know, delivering anything less than the best um, and, you know, going into it half heartedly wasn't going to cut it. I thought, you know, we needed to commit fully um, and, you know, we almost needed to put our middle finger up at the, you know, the, the global pandemic, so to speak, and, uh, you know, keep going on in the face of adversity. Um, and I believe that, you know, touch wood, we're starting to weather the storm. But like I say, it's, um, you know, stuff as stuff starts to catch up. 
you know, and I think that this uh, this Saturday is the last rescheduled show. Um, and after that, it's kind of all going to be um, essentially shows which are fresh ticket sales, etc. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to claw it all back, but it, it's been tough. It has been really tough. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it, it was all rosy throughout the pandemic because, um, as you said at the top of this, you know, it's my full time job. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it was touch and go for a while and scary in the sense of, you know, what if this doesn't work out for me you know what if this doesn't work out Mm. for us and um but i you know like i say like i've always been a glass half full person and you know throughout the whole thing tried to keep a positive outlook and like i say keep planning and replanning and replanning again um and looking at every eventuality as well you know what if we have to do outdoor shows you know what if we have to do all shows at 50 percent capacity um looking at testing protocols etc you know researching covid looking at its effects around the rest of the world you know just constantly trying to keep informed and trying to keep ahead of the situation the best i could be did you have obviously we've seen on the news you know there's a lot of small business owners saying that you know the government said they were going to provide support, but you know, nothing actually came through or it took a while to come through. Was that an avenue that you looked into? Um, yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we did get um, a degree of support because um, particularly, uh, I'm sure the, the, the loan, I didn't look, this is bad, isn't it? Because everyone's going to start being like, Oh, Rev Pro again, loans from the government. And now they're oh, going to be having trouble <laughs> paying those loans and whatever. Um, but we, we got a, quite a substantial loan, um, to to kind of help us out and we got the um we got we got some funding um unfortunately i was unable to personally get any funding due to being a self-employed director of a Mm. company who couldn't furlough himself because um you know because technically i couldn't furlough myself well i guess i'm employed by my company but I couldn't furlough myself because I'm the director and have to, you know, for the company to be able to exist, there has to be a director in operation. So I didn't personally get any um, any handouts per se. Um, the wrestling school um, got some grants which were helpful. And without the grants, um, we wouldn't have been able to stay open. Um, and um, But it was a standard small business grant that, um, were, that um, anyone with properties um, were able to get. Um, with which and and again in the early part of the pandemic um, we were able to get a small grant and then when we when we applied for for the the wrestling promotion at two separate companies and when we applied for another grant we were told that technically um, we weren't mandated to close or the office wasn't mandated to close (laughs) Um, so despite the fact that we're an events organizer and we couldn't run events we were still able to have the office open and plan events. Therefore we weren't entitled to that round of uh, funding. Um, so like I say, it was tough. And, uh, but you know, I, I don't want to sit here and, and be like, woe is me because, you know, if it wasn't for, for example, that, you know, the, the low interest rate loan, if it wasn't for um, the initial grant, um, if it wasn't for that stuff, then we wouldn't have been able to weather the storm. If it wasn't for being able to defer our last VAT payment, um, of the you know or the first VAT pan payment of the pandemic then we wouldn't have been able to survive you know um so there were there was some help um I know a lot of industries had it a lot better um I know a lot of individuals had it a lot better um but you know what can you do you've just got to you know again I just feel like it was a unique set of circumstances no one 
could ever well some people may have done but i you know i i couldn't see anyone who could foresee something like this come in um you know there were a couple of days you know at the start of this when i thought we are doomed um you know like majorly doomed but you know as kind of time went on um and more information came out about you know help available um and you know i was able to talk to our ticket provider who were very helpful at first and then less so helpful as time went on and they realized that uh shows weren't going to happen for a long mm. while um and you can't blame them for it either because you know you, their whole business is is events based so you know they you, you've got to think they probably gave me the same treatment as they gave numerous uh promoters up and down the country um but you know at the end of the day um <laughs> they wanted to start recalling that ticket money um that they said they'd cover initially but um you can't blame them for that you know it's uh just one of those things but like i say we were we were able to we were able to weather the storm you know i think that really um it is one of those things whereby a whole book could be written on the pandemic and the way it, you know, the way it changed the face of professional wrestling um, and especially professional wrestling in this country as well. Um, You know, I'm under absolutely no illusions that we're, we're not where we were prior to the pandemic, but I'm very positive, um, you know, at the steps we made during the pandemic and turning a negative into a positive um, using the empty arena shows to make sure that the rev pro, I don't want to say the rev pro universe, but you know, the rev pro world was able to continue to turn um and that we had some ready-made programs to get back to live events with um so um you know i i i'm kind of encouraged by what we were able to do um and excited by what the future holds really and i take it um, a lot more wrestlers have reached out to you now that you're running shows again uh yeah obviously you were on the art of wrestling podcast you know jokingly with colt cavana said that you know few people had reached out to you during the pandemic yeah i mean i'm quite popular again um in terms of uh you know the the messages um but yeah i think that but I, I do also think that a lot of people have forgotten that we've just come out of the pandemic as well because the amount of people who are now like um you know who who forget that we've had a tough like so obviously I, I appreciate wrestlers had a tough time, but, you know, promoters have had a very tough time during the pandemic as well, you know? Um, mm. So, um, you know, it's, I think a lot of people forget that as well, forget that side of things, you know, it's, uh, you know, I don't, I, I think I know a lot of wrestlers were kind of, especially, you know, especially at the start of the pandemic, you know, you saw a lot of wrestlers, um, you know, getting a lot of love with, uh, you know, with their, their shirt sales and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people forgot about the promoters, you know, the guys who ultimately have to pay their wages at the end of it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, again, it's, it's nice to feel a little bit popular again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but sort of rewinding back to, you know, before you started promoting and, um, you know, you got your start in the wrestling business, um, Attending a, a referee training course at the FWO Academy, was that with uh, Mark Sloan? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Yep. And obviously from there, you'd go on to referee all around Europe and, you know, for a variety of promotions. But one of the first things I wanted to ask you about, you know, because obviously you were involved in a match that went on to become infamous around British wrestling circles, oh, no. the uh, the Biggin in Wigan. <laughs> uh, for that, for those unfamiliar, this was a match from 2003 between Chris Spurls and uh, Cage Tyler for the original pro wrestling organization. The match 
didn't even take place in Wigan. It was actually in the northeast town of Wesham. Um, infamous now for being an awful wrestling match. Um, I think Tom Campbell got his hands on it. Of uh, Tom Campbell now of What Culture fame doing a fake commentary on the match and generally taking the piss out of it. Um, I think Tom feels like he was being a bit mean about it these days, but this got shared absolutely everywhere. And, Obviously, it gets brought up every now and again, and you were the referee. Uh, what were some of your memories? I mean, this is 2003. Was had you been in the wrestling business for uh, for long at this point? Maybe a year, um, maybe two. I don't know. <laughs> um, maybe a year or two. Um, so, God, is that I'm never going to live it down, am I? So, like, no. I always, <laughs> so I always say to to the trainees at the Portsmouth School of Wrestling. So, some people misunderstand or misinterpret what I say, um, but I always say um, that perception is reality, um, and I always say, you know, I, I've got no problem. I want my guys to go out and work as many places as possible. Um, but we all know that you know there are certain shows that you work where it looks like you're wrestling in front of your nan in your nan's living room right you've got the floral curtains you know um you you, you can see the walls are almost touching the wrestling ring um and i always say to them look by all means go and do those shows but don't share those pictures on your facebook and your instagram because perception becomes reality and i don't want you guys to be kind of pigeonholed as being um you know that guy can't be that good because he's, you know, wrestling in his nan's living room, so to speak. Um, and I think that if you look at some of the most successful wrestlers that were able to utilize social media, uh, they were the ones that, you know, they were still doing those shows, but they weren't putting their pictures of the working men's clubs up, you know. Um, and here I am all these years later um, and people are calling me on this YouTube video um, that uh, featured a, uh, you know, perhaps one of the worst professional wrestling matches um, <laughs> that have ever taken place. And when I say professional, we're probably including um, kid-style pro wrestling as well, you know, like the mm -hmm. pro wrestling that you do with your mates in the playground. I mean, I know I used to work better matches than that in the, you know, in my uh, muddy school playground, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, it's awkward when you think back to it, isn't it? Um mm. So I remember there's a few things about this. So Alex Shane, how can you, you know, how could Alex Shane not be tied to a British wrestling story? Of the, there he uh, is everywhere, isn't he? Um, so Alex Shane was doing a deal where he was, I want to say he was like the FWA champion at the time. Um but maybe he wasn't, so I don't want to be lying. But I want to say he was doing a deal where he... And I think he was, because I think he won the OPWO Heavyweight Championship on that that day also. Um, but he was doing a deal where he was going around and, and you know, winning championships. Um, and his matches look very much like every aspect of what he does in professional wrestling um, were kind of perhaps overfought and very intricate. Um, and as a result, he wanted a referee who he could trust. And he'd do pretty much the same match everywhere he went. Um, but he'd have a number of spots which he'd want done a certain way. Um, I remember the abdominal stretch uh, spot, which I guess, you know, is, you know, just a basic, you know, the, the, the heels got the wrestler in the abdominal stretch, you know, goes to the ropes, releases it just as a referee looks and, you know, does it three times, a third time referee kicks away the hand into the hip toss. Um, 
that kind of spot. Um, I remember um, the first time I did it with Alex, he got really angry at me. I don't even know what I did wrong, but he he swore at me. And it was in Newport, South Wales. He was wrestling Aviv Mayan. CM Punk was also on the show. Um, and uh, and we were getting changed in like a corridor. Um, but I got that spot wrong the first time I did it with Alex. Um, and when I say I got it wrong, in my opinion, I did absolutely fine in the spot, but he wasn't happy at the time. Um, and he called me an effing dickhead in the middle of the ring. And that really hurt the confidence of a, you know, a young boy who thought mm. he uh, knew the job of a professional wrestling referee. But anyway, um, our relationship kind of grew from there. Um, and he was kind of... Um, you know, so much so that I was his referee of choice. So he'd take me around to all these obscure local towns um, where, you know, I, I would observe him at work, essentially. He'd always have a driver. Um, I think at this time his driver was JC Thunder. Um, and, uh, but it was always, there was always someone different he'd have around for a few months at a time um, as his driver and essentially um, almost sit under his learning tree for the, the car rides um, and, um and yeah so that was just another one of those days just another random one i was never booked directly from opwo it's like his deal was like and you need to book my referee and then he'd just say to me this is where we're going you know be here at this point he's always like a get to his place um you know in finsbury park get there uh you know whatever time and we'll head off to the show um and i remember on this day we left uh we we wound up being late um, and I'm hoping I'm not going to mix up stories here, but you won't know if I'm like, if I'm, if I mix them up or not. So let's just go with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I want to say at this time, FWA was producing a TV show. Um, and it was Barry who went on to run SAS wrestling and then, um, something else. I don't know, but he's someone who's credited of training, uh, like Spud, Jack Storm, Dave Mastiff. Um, he's got a real good mind for professional wrestling, but he was editing videotapes at the time, uh, edit, editing the FWA show. So it'd probably be series two of the FWA TV, I'd imagine. Um, and um, we <laughs> on the way there, um, we had to drop off these. It was like mini DV tapes. They were at the time. We had to drop off these tapes to Barry on our way to the show, um, which was a bit of a detour. Um, so we get there on the way to the show. Um, so we, uh, uh, and, and we pull off on the hard shoulder of a motorway. We pull off to drop these tapes off to Barry, uh, to, to edit the FWA TV show. Um, and it was either he was dropping, yeah, he was dropping the tapes off, yeah, and and some money as well, right? And um and we pull up on the side of the motorway and it must be looked like some kind of drug deal. Um but it was on the hard shoulder and the police pull up behind us. I've never been so scared in my life. And then uh Alex, who thinks he can talk his way out of any situation, um, is just like, All right, yeah, we just uh <laughs> we're just uh doing a deal we're just i'm just handing over these dv tapes so i had to pass off these dv tapes to uh to this guy who's editing our tv show on the wrestling channel where <laughs> you know, just trying to sweet talk for the police officer um and then little did i know at the time and i don't think alex realized that you're not allowed to actually pull over to the hard shoulder of a motorway to have a conversation and at this point jc's getting really worried because obviously it's his driving license and that's on the line uh, and points on license and whatever and nothing to do with alex at all but then alex (laughs) 
quick as a cat. Suddenly, uh, he looks at Barry's petrol meter and he's like, oh, no, no, no. We had to pull over here. I've given him the DV tapes, but we had to pull over here because he's got no petrol. So I had to give him 20 quid so we can get make it to, so we can get to the petrol station and top up because he's got no cash on him. So and, and to that, the police officer looked at the, the gauge on Barry's car and it was in the red. And he took that as that's absolutely fine. Drive on, sirs. Um, <laughs> so he got himself. He got well. He got JC out of the fire, and he got Barry's DV tapes, and uh, Barry got his petrol. So it all worked out quite nicely. But anyway, I digress. That meant that we were late for the show. So we turn up at this show, and the show's already started. I'm the only referee on the show as well, and the show's <laughs> the show's already started by the time we we turn up. <laughs> So there's like a, a trainee wrestler or maybe even a wrestler who's wrestling later in the show is refereeing the first match of a show. Um, and it's one of these little venues. So a lot of venues, you know, you can get in via a back door, but not this one. So you've got Alex Shane, the big heel, JC Thunder, probably a baby face on the show. Uh, and myself, the referee, we all three of us, we walk straight through the venue in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of the opening match um, <laughs> of a show. Um, but there's about maybe 15 to 20 people there, you know. Um, and to put it in perspective, I'd probably travelled about 10 hours to get to this show as mm. well. Because by the time I got to Alex's, it was kind of, you know, I'd get the train to Alex's and then uh, from South End and then have to, then we'd drive to, to the show. Um, so it was a long journey, a long day. Um, and, you know, it was like 15, 20 people there. Um, and uh, and I remember like as the, as the matches were happening, the opening match was like a six man or it was a multi-man match. But as, as each match was happening, the wrestlers from the show were then going to sit in the crowd to make up the audience. Um, <laughs> and many of the wrestlers in the show were like, um, I'd consider them probably trainee wrestlers who were like amazed mm. that they were on a show with Alex Shane. And like, again, I know people take the piss out of Alex, but, um, you know, in regards to Alex Shane's stature as a British wrestler, he was perhaps the only star in British wrestling, aside from maybe Doug Williams, Jody Flash, Johnny Storm. I'd say mm. Alex Shane was a legitimate star, you know, um, in, in those days. And I think that um, a lot of those wrestlers were like, oh, my God, we're on a show with Alex Shane, you know, and they and they became fans for Alex. And, you know, so they became the set in the crowd and they made, all made noise for Alex's match. Um, but, yeah, anyway, this um, Chris Sprouls and Cage Tyler match, Chris Sprouls was a promoter. Um, as well as a wrestler on the show. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, Cage Tyler was like the babyface commissioner. And if Chris Sprouls won the match, he'd get control of OPWO. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it was, if you've ever experienced one of those moments where you want the world, to, you know, the earth to just swallow you, that was one of those moments for me. I was so embarrassed being in the ring with them as it was going on but I was also respectful enough to know I've just got to do my job. And that's what I did. Mm. I just did my job as a referee. And then I swear to God, as we came, as we, after we went backstage, um, Chris was, uh, Chris said to me, you know, like when there's two guys, but they don't even need to talk each other, talk to each other in the ring. They just go out there and they know what the other one's thinking. You know, that was one of those moments. That was magical, man. You know, that was so special, you know, <laughs> and I swear he thought he'd just had WrestleMania, you know, yeah. I, and it, you know, I was just like, yeah, sure. Fine. Thank you. You know, shook his hand, um, shook the other guy's hand, um, refereed the rest of the show. Um, and then obviously 
that was it. I thought I would never see or hear about that match ever again, because you have to understand, I want to reiterate, there was about 15 to 20 people in the crowd. Mm. And some of those were probably friends and family of wrestlers. And by the time the Chris Sprawls match happened, there may have been a few more, but it was only because they were workers who were also on the show. So really, I thought that that would be forgotten forever, but no, it was immortalized. Uh, and this was a day, this was before the times of camera phones as well. You know, someone much mm. must have recorded it on a handheld. So <laughs> God knows how, you know, how, you know, that was, Tom was able to get hold of that and, and lay the commentary down and, you know, immortalize this match. But um, I'm kind of glad he did. But at the same time, I cringe. I'm so glad they did. I mean, when you're getting Misawa Kabashi in uh, in Westrum in the northeast, by the sounds of that's what Chris seemed to think that it was by your uh, your explanation of it. Then you know that's brilliant that he that he takes it so seriously as well. I tell you what, I wish, I wish that I was making this up. I wish it was like something where I'm just like, you know, making it up for added effect, you know, um, because the match has gained legendary status. I, you know, I can make that line up to kind of, you know, add even more status to that match. But unfortunately, no, it's all 100% true. Well, you mentioned Alex Shane there, and obviously, he, you know, just a sidebar a bit, he is a Marmite figure in British wrestling, isn't he? and everyone seems to have a, you know, an Alex Shane story. Um, what's your, you know, what, what's your uh, opinion of him? Obviously, you know, like you said there, you know, he was, um, you know, he's a big name in British wrestling. You certainly did a lot of stuff with FWA. Yeah. You know? what's, what's your opinion of him um, in, in 2021? Um, so I think without Alex Shane, British wrestling, um, as we know it, um, wouldn't exist. Um, I don't, he was the first person to, you know, really, uh, I guess, go full force in terms of publicizing British wrestling. So Power Slam magazine was a, a magazine at the time, which, you know, was one of the, one of the biggest wrestling magazines in the UK. It was a big deal. And like, they would never touch British wrestling, but Alex Shane pushed for that. He got a, a radio show on Talk Sport you know, uh, wrestle talk, um, and, you know, on a set on a Saturday evening every week, you know, he pushed wrestling in this country to new frontiers. And he's a person who kind of always would dream big. Um, and I don't think that Alex, in terms of the business side of professional wrestling, I know there's a lot of people who've had bad dealings with him, including myself. I've had bad dealings with him as well. Um, but I believe that his intentions were always good. Um, but, Many times he just didn't think of some of the consequences of actions. He didn't think ideas fall through fully. Um, He would have good ideas. And then if it didn't take straight away, he would distance himself from those ideas, which left a lot of collateral damage. Um, And he would always want to have an element of control over a lot of what was going on in wrestling. Um, but I think it's because he cared so much about it. Um, so, you know, I think it's, he's, he is a polarizing figure and I can see why he's such a polarizing figure. Um, but he was a person who essentially was the first person who, who dared to take those big risks. He's a, he's a, you know, the visionary who thought of the super shows, who thought of a Coventry sky dome, you know, as a, as a realistic proposition for, um, for a British wrestling show, you know, um, he was able to push boundaries. He was very charming. Um, 
you know, he's someone who's able to talk to press, able to talk to buildings, able to, you know, represent British wrestling. Um, and hey, look, his his last work of art was winning the Butlins contract, you know. Um, so y- you've got to hand it to him, you know. And, and I think that one thing you could say is for, you, you only really hear about the successes. I mean, for every success he had, he probably had 20 failures. But, you know, um, I guess are we judged, you know, how do you judge someone, you know, big picture, you know, it's one of those things, you know, um, I think like all visionaries and all like, um, I guess, you know, he's always going to polarize opinion. He's always going to have people who are his detractors and he's always going to have people who are his supporters because he helped a lot of people as well. Um, and I think a lot of people will remember the help that they got from him. So, um, so like I say, it's, you know, there's no, there's no one size fits all answer when you're talking about Alex Shane. However, I don't think that for a second, anyone can discredit his role in, um, mm. in helping uh, bring British wrestling to its prominence. Look, without Alex Shane, uh, I, I'm not saying there wouldn't have been any, but like at its time, there wouldn't be any progress wrestling where it was. There wouldn't be any revolution pro wrestling where it was um, even funny stories. You know, I told a story recently about, um, you know, WXW's 16 karat gold weekend wouldn't have even been a thing if it wasn't for Alex Shane. You know, Alex Shane did the King of Europe Cup, which I believe was a, a great idea at the time. Um, but it was one of those ideas that he went full throttle with for the first couple of weeks of promotion. It didn't sell as well as he wanted. So then he was just like, uh, I'm kind of done with that now. But he kind of fo- but he followed through <laughs> and, and delivered the weekend. But a part of the the, you know, the Alex Shane con, and it's not a con, it wasn't a con, but, you know, it's the way, I, it's the best way to describe it, you know, is stuff like, a, you know, he's a wheeler dealer, you know, a wheeler mm-hmm. dealer. So his, part of his deal was, how can I get all these international guys on my show without it costing me any money? And it was essentially negotiating deals with the guys where they got like X amount of money for the week and then shipping him off wherever he could. And that's how the first 16 Garrett gold tournament came to be. Right. And yeah. then he peddled the DVDs. I've never seen anyone peddling DVDs like that. Man. <laughs> he was the first person to get like the DVDs professionally replicated. Um, so, you know, shrink wrapped done in a factory because he worked out, you could do that. The DVDs would cost you 50 P each, but you'd have to get a thousand DVDs. But Alex was knocking out the DVDs. You know, I remember buying a couple of boxes of, of those DVDs off him one pound 50 a unit. You know, um, mm. he'd be making profit on it, but he'd, you know, he'd sell the bulk, you know, like that's what he would, that's what he would do. That was his, you know, that was his ammo, you know, but um, like I say, his, his fingerprints were all over, it, it, are all over modern day professional wrestling. So as much as people probably begrudgingly would, would hate to say it, you know, if it wasn't for Alex, um, then the 16 karat gold tournament wouldn't be what it is today. And I believe if Alex had continued the King of Europe Cup, that would be a huge deal on our calendars as well. Um, mm. But obviously it was one of those things where it didn't have that instant success. So, you know, he was no longer interested. He lost interest and he moved on to to the next one, you know, the next project slash cons slash you know, dodgy deal. Yeah. You know? Um, <laughs> but like, but again, his intentions, I believe, are always in the right place. And you know, and he will tell you himself, like, you know, stuff like, um, you know, any of the shows he ran, 
he never had the money to run the shows but he knew all he had to find was the money to buy the to pay the deposit so i think the first uh, you know the first i uh, I, I, I don't want to get the stories muddled up. But I know there's one show, and I don't know if it was a Coventry Sky Dome or a York Call or whatever it was, but he never had the money for the show, maybe a Frontiers of Honour, um, but he never had the money for the show. But he knew if he put tickets on sale, he could get the money for a deposit to the building. Once he got the deposit to the building, the show was on. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Like it was, it was a pure speculation. And to me, I would never be brave enough to take those gambles. Um, but he did. And a lot of it paid off and a lot of it didn't pay off, you know, and I think that that's the thing, you know, when you have so many fools as well, people like to concentrate on the negative um, much more than the positive because the negative is a much better story. But again, I'm sure there's people who've had horrible dealings with him. Um, but like I say, like you, you, I, I appreciate he's a polarizing figure, but I think that you you have to if you're going to be a proper historian when we're talking about british european professional wrestling it, it's very hard to overlook him you know as much as some people might want to yeah he's certainly a, a fascinating figure it's just uh, it's funny with that commentary sky Dome, it almost became this sort of like brit rest mecca didn't it is it a building that you've ever considered running um I mean, it was a Brit mess. I think NXT UK thought it was a mecca as well, didn't they? Exactly. <laughs> I um, no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I don't want to get in any more trouble. Um, uh, no. Okay. So, uh, it, funnily enough, yeah. Like, so if you remember when I did the Strong Style Evolved UK shows, we went to the Ice Arenas. Strangely enough, the deal for the Ice Arenas was brokered by, have a guess, um, Alex Shane. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, if you, want to use, if you want to use the ice arenas, um, Alex Shane's the exclusive contact for the uh, ice arenas. Excellent. Um, so, He's like uh, the Jeff Jarrett of Britress, isn't he? Yeah. And, um, but he got that deal through the, doing the What Culture shows, right? And I don't know what his involvement was with What Culture, um, but, um, but I know he was a person who was a point of call for all those, you know, all the ice arena show, shows with What Culture. So, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I did, uh, when I was looking at the ice arenas, um, because uh, to me, it, it, the UK is very interesting in terms of venue size. Um, so it, it's very hard. Once you get over 1,500, 2,000 people, it's, it's very hard to find the next level up of building at a realistic price. Um, so that's why the ice arenas, you know, with their 2,500, 3,500, 4,000 capacity, whatever they are, um, you know, they're, they're a nice next level up building. Um, and, um, and yeah, like Coventry was definitely under discussion, um, but I made the decision because it's under the same people, Planet Ice, uh, the, the company that own it. Um, but I made the decision to go with Altrincham and Milton Keynes, um, based upon distance essentially. Um, mm. so so we and, and again, if we'd gone back with a similar show the next time, the next year, um, then Coventry certainly would have come into the equation. Um, but um, that's when New Japan made the decision. You know, I'd taken the risk for them. Um, that's when New Japan made the decision to go with a. You know, let's go with an arena. You know, let's go with a copper box. You know, um, so um, so that's kind of why that you know that that kind of changed, and we didn't wind up going there. Um, funnily enough. Ice arenas were also something that I thought about um, during lockdown um, because, again, when we were looking at 50% capacity of a building, um, you know, I was looking at it saying, look, I can't, you know, I can't realistically run the cockpit or, you know, 
1865 or St. Neots or, you know, any of these buildings mm-hmm. like that. Um, and you'll call like we, we were speaking to you call about 50% capacity, but then like none of the costs went down. So, you know, like your capacity obviously goes down massively, um, which again, you know, in some respects, maybe we wouldn't have drawn, you know, maybe, maybe that's all we could fit in anyway. But like in the situation we were in, we had to be able to give ourselves the opportunity to try and make more money, you know, or try and make money rather than the best we can do is break, break even or lose money or hope that the on-demand subscriptions pick up or whatever. So the ice arenas were like a venue, that, venues that I, I considered to be like, we could socially distance here and still get a good number of people in. You know, even if it's, you know, even like if it was a thousand, thousand capacity, you know, we could comfortably fit a thousand people in. Um, so that was, a you know, something that I'd thought about as well for, um, you know, for the, for the comeback. But, um, you know, uh, fortunately, it's something we didn't have to do. Um, mm. But I, I loved running the ice, apart from it being really cold during the setup. Um, I loved the ice arenas. Um, and I, I think it, I think they were great. Um, and I, I hope we could build back to a stage where the ice arenas can be a realistic prospect for, um, you know, for, for future shows, for future marquee events. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get there. Um, but, you know, I have to think in my heart of hearts that, you know, we've got the level of the, we've got the level of talent to get there. Um, for sure we have, um, have we got the right matches to get there? Who knows? Um, have we got the right storylines to capture people's imaginations? Who knows? Um, but, um, certainly I would, I would like to, to look at that kind of next level up building as a, as a future because you have to you know you can't just be looking at um you know sidestepping sidestepping or stepping back stepping back you know i think you've got to continually um look to move forward um so you know i wouldn't write off um going back there in the future um but you know it's certainly not something whereby um i look at it and say it's something we have to do you know it's uh it's one of those things that i would definitely do if it made smart sense to do yeah, yeah, definitely that makes sense. Um that's what I was back onto your uh onto your uh refing career because obviously you went on to you know be a ref at much more prestigious shows than the Biggin and Wigan. One that, You're saying that, that show wasn't prestigious, come on. <laughs> well, it was for Chris Bills, but uh, one that comes to mind is the uh ROH Unified show in Liverpool in two thousand and six. Obviously that's got a lot of play over the years. It featured that classic Brian Danielson against Nigel McGuinness uh, main event. And you and Taz from WXW were the two refs on that show and now obviously both running two of the biggest wrestling promotions in Europe. Um, any memories particularly of either running, um, I know you refed um, a few of the ROH tours over here and then the Noah tours and the Dragon Gate UK tours. Just some uh, memories from um, being the ref on some of those sort of big international tours as they were at the time um, when they came over here. Um, very interesting learning experiences. Um, they completely dispelled, and I'll get into Tass in a second as well, because I think that's quite an interesting point um, you make about the two of us. Um, But um, in terms of, um, you know, the the shows themselves, I remember they dispelled my myth, the the myth that had already been taught, always been taught to me, that um, you have to have a down match before your main event. 
Um, and it's something that WWE kind of created, I guess. Um, and it's something that, you know, FWA, I remember there was that Robbie Brookside and Drew McDonald match at the first British uprising at York Hall. Um, and, and we, I think that was where it was. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, and people were like saying like, oh, you know, it wasn't, it was a boring match and it was a slower pace. It was deliberately a slower pace match. And FWA's logic behind it was, you know, we're doing it to bring the crowd down. I'm just like, hang on a minute. Why do why do we need to bring the crowd down? You know, I appreciate, you know, um, the crowd having a breather after intermission and having to bring them back up. Right. But why do we need to bring the crowd down? You know, mm. do you ever go on a roller coaster and they're like, you've had enough fun for now. So we're going to bring you down and wait, wait till we get to a loop the loop. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. always that suspense going. It might be a different pace uh, suspense in that roller coaster, but there's always that air of suspense. There's nothing throwaway on a roller coaster or on a good roller coaster. Um, and that's what kind of Ring of Honor taught me. You can get away with having those world-class main events, you know, back to back, bang, bang. And like, I can't remember the shows kind of all blur into one for me, really, when we're talking about the Ring of Honor tours. And that's perhaps one of the, the Ring of Honor's downfalls, maybe. I don't know. Uh, of course, you know, the, the McGuinness and Danielson match, you know, is something which is legendary. Um, but I mean, I'm thinking about the rest of the cards and I can't really tell you much about them apart from, um, I remember always remember the fantastic Briscoe's tags. Um, and I want to say they're, they're the ones that normally led into the main event. Um, but I, I could be wrong on that, but like, uh, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. You know, those Briscoe's tags, you know, for the, all the near falls and the crazy moves. And, um, you know, I had me as a referee being like, oh, my God, when's the finish going to come? I've got absolutely no idea. You know? <laughs> um, and that was always the scariest. To me, that was always the scariest thing. You know, I didn't want to make a mistake. I didn't want... Um, I didn't want to upset the wrestlers and like, I, I didn't want to have to go back to the locker room being like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Um, and especially because it felt like the shows felt like such a big deal. And even if you look at, when you look at the shows in, in really in comparison, you know, the shows weren't, it wasn't like there was <coughs> thousands and thousands of people at the shows, but they just felt so much more important. And I think that the, the crowd's energy levels were so important. And I think that those early Ring of Honor shows, they put so much importance in those shows. You know, they were real shows. They weren't house shows, you know, like some of the later, you know, Ring of Honor tours in, you know, in recent years. They didn't feel like house shows at all. They felt like, you know, these shows are a part of Ring of Honor canon. They're important and they mean the world you know um so it felt like i was a part of something really important um and i think it was probably i don't, I don't know if it was my first time working with a real professional organization but perhaps it felt like it again who was yeah. responsible for those tours alex shane <laughs> you know what i mean so like again the just the <laughs> it's the fingerprints all over everything but um and of course he fell out with them and as, as he does you know like uh, but again if it wasn't for him, they probably wouldn't have come over for those the tours and, you know, got the hype and publicity they got for that, that first couple of tours they did. Um, but it was, um, it was a real experience. And for me, like I've always been a fan, I, you know, I've never made any secret of the fact that I'm a fan of professional wrestling. I tried to watch as much pro wrestling as possible, sometimes to my detriment as well. Um, but, um, you know, so being able to be a part of those ring of honor shows, it meant so much to me. I can't, I can't emphasize enough, you know, like it was one of those, you know, the night before I couldn't sleep. I woke up super early, mm. super buzzed and excited, just taking everything in and just so happy to be a part of the experience, you know, just, so, I can't, 
you know, I can't emphasize it enough. And I'm sure that anyone who was a fan of those shows at the time, um, who attended those shows um, and had that buzz, excitement, and those shows meant so much to them, it was exactly the same for me. It was no, there was no, um, you know, there was no like a, uh, uh, complacency from my part because I was involved in the business. There was never a time when I stopped becoming a fan and I'm still a fan to this day. You know, I still get buzzed and excited. Anyone who's seen me recently, especially after the, the Rev Pro show, since we've been back, like, you know, I say, like, I just want to run out on the streets and scream. I'm so excited, <laughs> you know, like uh, after some of the, you know, some of the, the shows we've had, like we've had that recently, that Michael Oku and Will Ospreay match um, in Southampton. And we've had the Young Guns against Oku and Mills um, and Osprey and Ricky Knight Jr. Um, and just some of those matches. I've just literally wanted to run out on the streets and scream at the end of the show because I'm so buzzed and pumped. And, you know, for so long, um, I guess we took this live wrestling in front of a crowd for granted. Um, and being able to get it back has been able to really bring back the fan in me and the appreciation for the other wrestling fans who are able to um, really uh, display their enthusiasm and enjoyment for the product in a way that I'm not able to, because I'm either sat behind a commentary desk or backstage or, or refereeing or ring announcing or whatever I'm doing on the show, you know? Um, So to me, I was just as excited as every single fan, perhaps more so. Uh, and it was just an absolute pleasure being a part of the, you know, the the, the shows. Um, and I remember Gabe being very complimentary about my refereeing work. Um, and from that point, he always wanted me to referee his, um, you know, the, the shows. When Ring of Honor came over, Gabe would always ask for me to referee. And he'd always want me to referee for the stuff like the Briscoes tag matches because they were so crazy. And I was like a little quick referee who didn't get in the way, didn't blow the finishes. Um, so it was just an absolute pleasure um, to be a part of it. Um, so yeah, it was great. Um, and I guess cycling back round to Taz. Um, I, I, you know, I always believe that um, for me being a referee, the reason why I've been successful um, as a booker, as a promoter, um, is because I was a referee first. Um, and I feel that if you're a referee, especially if you're one of those referees, that uh, you know, has to put a shift in and, and referee every single match on the card. Um, and especially if you're a referee, not a referee who just referees for one promotion, but like a proper referee, you know, who goes up and down the country. You know, I'm like, you know, I guess like, you know, the more, more like currently we've got like Oscar Hardy and Chris Hatch who do my shows, but they referee, you know, they referee up and down the country. They referee like a an all star show, Rumble Promotions, um, you know, like a Wrestle Force, you know, every single show, family friendly shows, progress, you know, internet shows, whatever they are they're referee up and down the country they're referee you know in in cities you'd never heard of they're referee the chris sprawls and the cage tylers um you know and they have the opportunity to see wrestlers who you may never have heard of before who you may never have seen before um so my example i always give is when i was refereeing that's where i discovered martin stone leroy kincaid spud jack storm dave mastiff that's where i discovered those guys um when i was refereeing you know um and i was able to bring them into ipw as a booker um because I knew they brought something to the table that people in FWA, the, you know, the hottest promotion at that time, couldn't see because they were too preoccupied with what was in front of them, right? And on top of that, 
on top of that, sorry, um, you 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 learn. You so I, I gave you the example of you know I learned from that Ring of Honor show that you know you can have two hot matches back to back, but you learn what works well before intermission. You learn you know what works well as an opening match of a show. Um, you learn about ma- match positioning. You learn learn about match structure. You also learn a lot of spots which work. So. Um, you know, as a referee, you're always involved in 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 different types of spots. We mentioned the abdominal stretch spot. So we can be like, okay, that works in a family show. So, wow, I can throw that out to my wrestlers. You know, we're doing a family show. I can throw that spot out to the wrestlers. Oh, why don't you throw this spot in? You know, um, you, you see all different kinds of angles. And again, like I say, like with that Chris Brawls and, and Chris Brawls and Cage Tyler show, that had no right to be filmed whatsoever, right? I should have been able to lift every single finish from that show if I'd wanted to and put it on one of my shows and no one would be any the wiser, you know? But you just learn so much about the business and you learn about the wrestlers, you learn about what they like, what they don't like. Um, so as long as you treat it like a sponge, um, I really think that it, it's such a beneficial position. Everyone always jokes, you know, back in the day, you know, the referees would always become office in the end. Um, but I think that's the reason why. And you develop relationships with talent and trust with talent as a referee. Um, and I think that it's all of those attributes that lend to being a good promoter. Um, and if you've done, if you've, genuinely if you've if you've traveled up and down the country you've refereed shows all over the place you've traveled around the world even you know you're you're making invaluable contacts um and you know it puts you in such a good stead it's like uh it's really a university for becoming a a booker or a promoter or you know or having a, a backstage behind the scenes role in professional wrestling yeah, because, I mean, is that some advice that you'd certainly give to people who perhaps aren't interested in becoming wrestling and are wanting to sort of like go behind the scenes um, and become sort of more involved in wrestling? Would, you know, would becoming a referee for a couple of years some advice that you give people? You know, to me, I feel like um, if you're going to be a referee, I feel like you need to go into it with the commitment. If you're going to be a good referee, you need to mm. go in with it with the commitment that I'm going to become a full time referee. That's what I would say. Right. And, and you know, look. Look at the, you know, the top referee in the country, arguably, was Tom Scarborough. Look, he's got his NXT UK gig, you know, mm. like, um, it, which is like a full-time salary. Look, I, look at me. I was one of the only full-time referees at the time, you know, who wanted to be a referee because so many people, you know, so many promoters would just use a trainee wrestler as your referee um, because, you know, it's an overlooked role on the show. But I was like you know, I want to be a referee. I never wanted to be, I want it. Don't get me wrong. I always had aspirations of being a booker. I never, ever, ever wanted to be a promoter. I still don't want to be a promoter, but you know, needs must. Right. Mm. <laughs> um, and I don't want to do a number of the jobs that I do, but you know, Hey, you've got to do it. You've got to get on and do it. But, um, you know, I feel that, um, if you commit yourself to being a full-time referee, that's where you're, whatever you, whatever role you want to do, that's where opportunities come from. So because I wanted to be a full-time referee, um, so because I, I want to be a full-time referee, I, I was able to then, you know, go on tours. I went to, I did like the, like the first, they were quote unquote TNA shows in Portugal, which was like Kurt Angle's first shows outside of, wwe um, kurt angle versus samoa joe i did two nights of a referee two kurt angle versus samoa joe house show matches after their first pay-per-view whatever it was um so you know so that was 
that was, you know, just an experience I got from being a full-time referee. I then refereed for MWE, uh, you know, the Italian promotion. And we did... I was actually just going to bring them up now because obviously, you know, you did mention that you've refereed all over Europe. And that was... I mean, they've long forgotten now, I think, by a lot of people, aren't they? And that was absolutely wild, was it? Uh, Roberto Indiano. And they yes. were running some massive shows, weren't they? Like in Italy and like all over Spain. Didn't they even bring an Ultimate Warrior for his last ever match uh, against Orlando Jordan? Yes, that's right. So yeah, so um, Ultimate Warrior. I wasn't, unfortunately, I wasn't, I had a shoot job at the time. Um, they wanted me to referee the match. Um, so I was there for Ultimate Warrior's return, um, which was in uh, Madrid in front of 15,000 people. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was there for that return. I I kind of saved his return as well. So this is why I always say like semi-saved. <laughs> um, they had the worst <laughs> ring on planet Earth. Um, and what happened was they had the ring set up the day before and the ropes were terrible and they kept tightening them and tightening them and tightening them and tightening them. And eventually you can't tighten them anymore. And if the ring doesn't have enough tension, um, then the ropes become very floppy, right? And they, and they only going to get more floppy and no one from the, the show realized this. And of course, what's Ultimate Warrior's big gimmick? He shakes the ropes, doesn't he? Yep. Right. And the ropes were literally drooping to the floor and no one seemed, and they just kept tightening them and tightening them during the show. And they, it was just getting worse and worse because then someone had hit the ropes and instantly they'd flop. Um, and basically I was the only person who recognized, look, you need to untighten everything. You need to take all the tension off the ring and essentially start again. Um, and I remember going out there during the interval when like, you know, leading the Italian ring crew who never had a clue um, in retightening the ring, retight like so, you know, putting off the ratchets, undoing all the tensioners, and and then redoing it all, and and getting them to a, a state where they weren't good by any stretch of imagination, but they were passable. But that's why I always say it's so important to be multi-skilled because um, after that point, I became NWE's guy. They loved me, like they they brought me back tour after tour after tour. Um, and I lived a, a, a wonderful, it was about 18 month stint, I guess, maybe two years, but it was just a wonderful time, which I took for granted, obviously, um, and which I never would do now. And that's if, you know, if I could go back and tell a younger me that, you know, um, what to do, it'd be never take advantage of that, you know, uh, never take advantage, sorry, never take it for granted. Um, you know, some of the shows we did were crazy. Um, and there was so much fundamentally wrong with NWE that I was too scared to say anything about as well. Like, um, I always use the example of we went to Malta and it was the first wrestling show in Malta in something like, I don't know, 20 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. We were on like TV in Malta. Like we did a signing. And when I say we, I, me included, we did a signing in a school, right? Like, <laughs> so kids were flocking including me kids were flocking to us and we were signing autographs in the school right we then did a signing an autograph signing in a burger king right wow. that's how big it was right and we were on tv and we did the, and like we were treated like vips in malta we had this guy who we weren't allowed to leave the hotel without security we had this guy who looked after us he took us out to nightclubs bought all the drinks for us like it was just it was another world. It was, it really was. And, um, and they did, did they these did kids recognize you? What from the TV or were they just like, Oh, he's with the wrestling. He's with the wrestling. He must be famous. 
That's what it was, you know. It wasn't anything. It was. It was just such excitement about wrestling being in town, you know. And I think it had legitimacy as well because obviously it did have, you know, your big WWE names as well. But like, still, you know, I think it was just like they're just involved in the wrestling show, the wrestling, you know, the big wrestling shows come into town, and we just want to be a part of it, you know. Um, mm. And they sold out the first show. And then with like maybe a week to go, they added a second show, maybe 10 days to go. And it was a big venue. I can't say how big, but maybe like five, 6,000 seats, right? Um, and the first show was sold out. Um, or maybe the second, I can't remember which show was sold out because whichever one they added. So the first show they announced was sold out. And the second one was about 80% full, right? And uh, they were doing the same show on both nights legit the same show and like i look at like so wwe's house show lineup now i look at it and they they're openly saying we're doing the same house show we're doing the same show every single night brighton liverpool wherever we're going same show guys pick one do you know what i mean like it's yeah. weird like, I, i've never got that because like how easy would it be to just switch it up a little bit you know uh, and make it so that if you are a traveling fan you can follow them around it's not like you know, people who go and follow, uh, you know, rock artists around or whatever, you know, like rock stars, you know, like going from gig to gig, you know, you may only play certain songs, but like, you know, when you've got the ability to be able to switch things up, why not do it, you know, but whatever. Um, but we were in the same building, same city, night after night, right? And I, I, I said to them, this is one of the times I did speak up and I said to them, why are you doing the same show? They said, there's going to be, um, I mean, maybe we should mix it up a bit because, it's going to be the same people. And they were like, no, you don't understand. There's so much demand in Malta that we had to add a second show. And I was <laughs> like, yes, but if I was a wrestling fan and wrestling comes to my, my country for the first time in so many years, I'm buying tickets to both shows. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Right. And, uh, and then like it, they still went ahead and did the same show both nights. Um, but they did switch a couple of things around based upon the fact that we did a meet and greet before the show. Um, and there were people from the night before they'd literally had taken pictures at the show, got them developed during the day and they'd bought pictures <laughs> from the night before and got us to sign the pictures. And that was enough to convince them we'll change a couple of matches, but you know, still most of it will be the same. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, it's still just crazy, crazy experiences, um, and doing stuff like that. And like I say, like, I felt like it was going to go forever. Um, and we were on a channel called La Sexta in Spain, which is channel six, which, uh, it was a good channel to be on, you know? Mm. Um, and, and it was on prime time Saturdays and Sundays for the first, maybe three or four weeks. And then they moved it to an early morning slot. Um, and I remember we did a, uh, the first show, the first, um, the first show, the first week that aired, it did massive ratings. Um, and we all watched it together in the hotel because we would happen to be on another tour. Um, it was the last day of a tour when the first show, or the night, it was a night before, so the penultimate day of, the, of, of a tour was the night the first TV show aired. And I got the ratings through the next day. And I remember Rikishi saying to me, you're getting a contract, son. You know, he's like, did you hear the ratings? You're getting a contract, son, and giving me a big hug. And that's the first and only time I've been promised a contract in professional wrestling. <laughs> um, and then obviously the ratings went downhill from there and I never did get that contract. But it was yeah. serious enough. I had like a shoot job in London and they were saying, what do you earn in your job? You know, um, and they were saying, you know, we can, uh, we'll match what you earn. And it'll be like, it was like something like uh, they had plans like, 
I can't remember the exact plans, but say, for example, it was like in six week cycles, like four weeks on, two weeks off, so to speak, you know, tour Europe for four weeks, go home for two weeks, you know, um, and uh, and it was just crazy. And then, like, we went back for the next tour and all of a sudden, you know, we'd gone from playing in front of thousands of people to playing in front of like half empty bull arenas. And then the next tour after that we did. Um, we, we'd gone thinking we're going like maybe a 12 date tour but by the time we got there we were told it was a five date tour but then we got there it was like a, a free or two or three date tour but we still mm. the kicker was the promoters had paid for the hotels so we still had to travel to each town as if we were working a tour but we just weren't yeah. doing the shows when we got to the places so it was a miserable miserable time and like you just realized you know how just as quickly as you had it it was kind of taken away and a lot of it was their own doing like i say um but like um yeah it's times like that you realize you shouldn't take stuff for granted you should enjoy it whilst you have it and i've I've really as i've got older i've been able to look back and reflect more on that time and be like you know we should have made the most of that time you know Mm. did they just burn the towns out then um yeah, I think in many ways, I think a lot of the towns, so like you had like a, you had some towns that, so they did it in Italy mega because in Italy they'd advertise like Smackdowns come into town and then like they would deliver, you know, I remember the first show I did was in Naples and there was a big poster for Smackdown and the Smackdown superstars they had on the shows were like, uh, is it Aaron Aguilera, who was Jesus? Mm. in wwe like carlito's well. yeah no no not on this show it was on this oh. show it wasn't on this show carlito's bodyguard right and then it had um and it had uh big veto um and maybe one other guy who were their guys but like when we did the when we did the main shows when it when it was going through that boom in spain they struck at the right time that's for sure and i think it only ever had a shelf life but what I, what I never understood is and the show they did in madrid was pretty rotten Right. And what was interesting was every time we went to and did a venue, uh, like if we did two nights, like the first night of a tour would always be really bad. And the second night would always be a lot better. Um, I remember we did two. Well, we did four shows in the Canary Islands um, and the same pattern for each. The first show, terrible. But then it got better um, as the tour went on. <laughs> um, and like Ultimate Warrior is the only wrestler that um, I'd ever. And again, you've got to understand it's because I grew like when I was what four years old i was watching ultimate warrior you know he was a superhero right and at this style this this stage in my life well, i'm probably about 20 years old and i'm sat with the ultimate warrior and his presence i can't even at that time he had just such a huge presence about him um and i was i was i was physically shaking being in his presence it was mm. weird it was i've never i've never been like that with anyone i've met ever you know um and i guess a lot of it maybe because i'm a bit older now and maybe because then as well ultimate warrior was the first guy i met you know like we came in um it was only my second or third tour with them and um we came and used to come in like a few days early and all the guys were doing rehearsals so when i arrived the guy like so i had a few mates who would do who i knew who do the shows like m dog 20 matt cross and pack um they were my guys you know so like you know i'd be looking for them straight away um but they were they were go there doing rehearsals um so like uh i would so you know every and, and as was everyone else on the show and the only wrestler who wasn't doing rehearsals was ultimate warrior 
So we were kind of sat down one-on-one together, you know? So like, it was almost like that nervousness of being in a new place, big company, you know, being put up in a nice hotel. And it's like, and by the way, here's Ultimate Warrior. Please have a chat with him. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know? So um, how do you break the ice with Ultimate Warrior then? Um, well, he kind of broke the ice with me. He was like, so you're a referee. He's like, do you know, you know, do you want to do this full time? You know, have you, have you spoken to Vince? Um, and then he started telling me about a story, uh, about how, um, WrestleMania, uh, they wanted him to go to the ring in one of those little carts on the way to the ring. And he refused and sprinted to the ring. And then he regretted it when he got in the ring because <laughs> he was blowing. I'm sure he was just giving me the old routine, you know, but yeah. it certainly, it certainly put me at ease. And he, again, like I say, my experience, he was there for that first few days of that tour. Um, but he only did the one show. Um, and then he went off and lived. They put him up in a house in Spain where he was training and whatever. Then he joined the end of the tour for the, his match. But I, my experience with Ultimate Warrior was nothing but great. Right? Apparently, when he came back for the match, he was nothing but an arsehole, right? Mm. And then he just changed completely. But like I was there, you know, he gave a speech to the locker room about how he wants to help people, um, you know, and, and I had nothing but great experiences with him. And, you know, to be honest, in many ways, I'm kind of glad that that was my experience. And as much as I would have loved to have refereed that match, um, you know, I, I, I'm i kind of glad that my experience with him was a positive experience because it probably would have soured me a lot, a lot sooner to the wrestling business than, you know, than than it took to, to make me bitter and twisted. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Pac there. Uh, obviously, you know, it, the Pac that you're talking about, obviously he was still spectacular in the ring back in 2000 and sort of like six, wasn't he? But, you know, he's, he's been on record on, on the art of wrestling uh, with Colt Cabana saying, you know, he, he was full of anxiety and he was very shy and stuff. So you were far cry from sort of like the character you see now on AWTV. So what gimmick did they lumble him with in this Italian promotion? Wasn't he sort of like a Tarzan type character? Yeah, Jungle Pack. Jungle Pack, yeah. Um, which sounds wow. terrible, but like, uh, again, it was, a, it was a product which was aimed at kids and he mm. made it work. He made it work. You know, and that's, that's, to me, I think that that was where he started to really gain confidence. You know, if I can make this shit work, I can make anything work, you yeah. know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, Pac's like, for my money, Pac's one of the best wrestlers in the world right now. And, to, and like, I think perhaps, you know, right. So I'll say Pac's one of the best wrestlers in the world right now. You may or may not agree. Right. But I, I feel like a lot of people would agree with me when I say that. Right. But in my next breath, I'm going to say, Pac's the most underrated wrestler in the world as well because I don't mm. think people realize how good he is um and uh yeah I genuinely believe you know he's a true heel his timing is something else he's another wrestler who's not afraid of pacing like you know again you look at Rev Pro matches you look at that match of Pac and Michael Oku at the cockpit the reason why they uh, and even at your match at your call the reason why they work so well with each other is because Michael Oku, the reason why Michael Oku is able to resonate with the crowd so well is because he's able to like, and at such a young stage in his career, because you don't forget when he worked pack, he'd only been doing it for a year, professional mm. wrestling. Right. And for a lot of that, he'd had a broken arm. Right. So Michael Oku is one of these guys who's not afraid to sell, not afraid to take his time when so many wrestlers just want to go a hundred miles an hour and they're afraid of silence. They're afraid of, you know, working the audience into a professional wrestling match. And Pac's exactly the same. So that's why they gel so well together. But Pac is one of these guys, you know, he will work for a reaction and 
He is just flawless in his execution. He makes everything seem so easy. Um, he's composed. Um, you know, Pac is a man when it comes to professional wrestling. Um, and I hope the world takes notice. You know, people say like, oh, Andrade's best match since leaving WWE was with Pac. No shit, right? <laughs> And, you know, and I look at that last AEW pay-per-view or the one before where Omega, Pac, Orange Cassidy, who was like, people say Kenny Omega is the best wrestler in the world. But if you ask me, in my opinion, who the star of that match was, and if you disagree with me, go back and watch that match, who the star of that match was, Pac, Mm. right? He made people believe that a title change was going to happen when it was almost never going to happen, you know? Um, I can't put him over strongly enough, you know, and as well as that, he's one of the, the I don't want to, you know, break the fourth wall too much here, but he is one of the nicest people um, you'll ever meet, you know, and mm. in a time when you hear so many horrible stories about professional wrestlers. And again, I've met them all. Do you know what I mean? Like um, Pac is as genuine as genuine can come. He's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Um, he's got a great soul. He's just, he's, he's a real deal, you know, um, and he, but he deserves every success and he works for it as well. Do you know mm. what I mean? And like, you know, there's so much, you know, there's so much many untruths that, you know, I, it's, it's not my story to tell, but you know, there's so much, uh, many untruths about, you know, his WWE, the end of his WWE tenure and, and whatever, um, which, Again, it's just it would paint Pack to be a completely different person to he is to what he is, and like you know, to me, Pack is he's one of the most professional wrestlers that you will ever meet, and he's true to his word, um, and he's one of the hardest workers you will ever see. And uh, yeah, I just genuinely believe, you know, in case you can't tell, I'm a big fan of his, and I'm not just so yeah. much as a person, you know, and I just feel like. You know, there's so much time spent and concentrated on negativity, mm. but we deserve to look at some positives, and then Pack is one of those. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, you, you hear that for a lot of people. You know what a great guy he is and everything. Um, but I suppose back to you, and um, you know the last sort of like few questions on your on your refereeing career. But um, obviously, everyone remembers around the time and watching the matches back now. You know, very you got some quite problematic chants from fans and I suppose they don't really stand the test of time and I wanted to ask you about them because obviously you know Theo Walcott was a famous professional football player for Arsenal and obviously you got um, his name chanted at you quite a lot on on different Britrest shows and um, I suppose it's, it's quite problematic looking back at, at that now you know obviously comparing one black man to another. Um. Yeah. Wow. This interview has taken a funny turn, hasn't it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, look, I, okay. So I, what I want to say is context is all. Okay. Mm. So it's very easy to, to sit and take offense to it and, and look back in hindsight and be like, that was racist. You know, look, I'm going to say, uh, and, and I think education is, a, uh, again, anytime you talk to me on any kind of sensitive subject, I'm going to tell you education is the most important part and discussion, conversation, right? I'm bringing people in. I'm not pushing people away, right? If anyone ever chanted Theo Walcott at me, anyone ever called me Theo, whatever, I'd, I've got no issue uh, against it. You know, at the time, I never took offense to it. Um, 
you know, at, with the benefit of, of hindsight, with the benefit of getting older, I look back and I say, yeah, that wasn't right. You know, I can look back and say, I don't really feel that, you know, I don't. And again, it's it's not just Theo Walcott, you know, I've been, it's, it's, and it's been a lot more recent than that. I, so I, I'm not using time as an excuse. I mean, you know, recently, Byron Saxton, Jonathan Coachman, any, you know, any uh, person of colour I've been compared to. Um, you know, I remember always remember like um, Sam Bailey, you know, the Future Shock guy, Sam mm, Bailey. Yeah. Uh, many people used to always call him Andy Quilden, you know, because I was around a little bit before him. You know, and then people would want to get our pictures taken next to each other because I wrote when I refereed the first few Future Shock shows. And, um, you know, I don't look at that and take offence to it. Um, I look at it and, and at the time, you know, I don't even think I've been educated to think that it was wrong. You know, mm. I feel like at the time, you know, and, I, and I'd always been taught as well, you know, with racism. If anyone's racist to you, just laugh about it. Just shrug your shoulders about it that's what i was always taught you know um it always you know i'm not comparing our situations at all but um you watch the dark side of the ring episode on the plane ride to hell yeah um, and you always you, you always terry runnels you know people's advice to her was don't sell it don't sell it that's how i was taught with racism just don't sell it don't let people think that they've got to you don't let people win right and that was always my mentality um and i don't think that i was mature enough um i don't think i'd had enough life experience i don't think that the uk was ready to have that discussion i don't think that we were you know as a country you know forget about wrestling just as a country in general i don't think we were in the place to have a discussion and I think that because of that, I I couldn't tell you I would deal with it any differently now because you have to look at it with the benefit of hindsight. You got you got to and you can't look at it with the benefit of hindsight. Sorry, you have to look at it with the context of the time we were in. So now, would I take offence to it? Yes, I would. Would I try to cancel anyone who who talked in such a way, who was ignorant to the fact? Would I try to start a, you know, start a campaign, a smear campaign against anyone who'd even used racist language, um, knowingly or unknowingly, um, caused offence, knowingly or unknowingly? I wouldn't. I would pull them in for a conversation. If they weren't receptive to that conversation, would I then go at them? Yes, I would. But I think you have to give people the opportunity to understand. Um, I think that's the most important thing. Um, so, like I say, with the benefit of hindsight, I look back and I'm like, that wasn't cool, you know. But at the time, I had no issue with it. And I want to stress, if anyone who's listening to this used to chant anything like that at me, I've got no problem with it at all. You know, I have no problem whatsoever. And there's nothing to apologize for. There's no there's no need to be like, oh, upon reflection, I probably shouldn't have done that. You know, it's a case of learning, you know, and, and saying, look, we shouldn't have done that. You know, and I'm educating myself a lot on on race. Um, you know, you'd think, you know, being a being a, a person of color growing up in the United Kingdom, you think like, what does he need to educate himself with? But I do, because like 
you know, to me, there's a lot of things I need to educate myself about. And like, there's things that I always just accepted as a norm. So, um, and, and stop me if I'm going on too much because it's, uh, you no, know, no, I appreciate you answering the question. Um, but you know, I, I would look at stuff and say, look, do you think it's right that when I walk into a shop, I feel like I'm being watched and, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, if I, if I walk into a shop and one of my white friends walks into a shop, I'm the person that's being watched. Do I think it's right that every time I see a police officer, I'm instinctively nervous? You know, I just accepted, I, I didn't even think about it as, I just accepted it, that was my normal, right? Um, and this is a stereotype and this is a sweeping stereotype. But I found myself, particularly with old people, having to have a really big smile. So whenever I pass a stranger in the street, making sure I smile at them, you know, because I don't want them to think I'm a threat. Is that right? Because I'd never thought about it like that before Mm. until I started, you know, it should never be like that. It shouldn't. Our society should accept everyone for the way they are. It doesn't matter your sexuality, your race, your religion. None of that stuff matters. Ultimately, we're all human beings. And I feel like there's so much to be learned about. And, you know, I think that um, they call it whitewashing history, but there's so much history um, that is forgotten about. And it's almost like, and again, it's not anyone's fault. Um, because, you know, it's we're the product of the environment we grew up in. All we can do is be a part of a change. And we can be a part of that change from education. And, but, you know, you, you look at history and the, the, the big one um, for me uh, is, well, when I was like, the one which made me stand up the most, right? Um, when I was when I realised that this was going on, um, was like the light bulb. So I'm going to ask you a question. You probably you may know the answer. I don't know, right? But who invented the light bulb? Um, I want to say Thomas Edison, but is that whitewashing history? Okay, so Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, but he invented the light bulb with a piece of paper which burned in seconds, right? So who invented the filament that made the light bulb be able to work? I have no idea. And it's a guy called Lewis Howers Latimer, who's a black man. And it's just not a part of history. No. And he's not credited with the invention of the light bulb, despite the fact that he's the person who made the light bulb work because Mm. he created the filament which was able to stay alight and not burn out in seconds. And when I see stuff like that, and again, I'm not like, I'm not kind of getting on you for not knowing that because I didn't know that Mm. I've learned that through education from really. And it wasn't, it was only because of lockdown and this period of self-reflection and obviously, um, you know, everything that happened throughout lockdown, the black lives matter movement and all of that stuff, you know, it's only because of that, but I've started educating myself on this subject. 
right? So again, like I say, it's, it's, it's one of those things whereby all I can do is talk about it and encourage people to learn. And I understand if people don't want to learn. I get it, right? But like, at the, at the very least, all I ask is that everyone treats everyone like a human being. I don't, you know, if you don't want to learn about the, the you know, black culture and, and whatever, you know, if you don't want to learn about different religions, I don't care. Just treat everyone like a human being, but also, and, and, and but part of being, uh, uh, treating people like a human being is having that empathy and compassion and understanding, you know, and understanding that everyone goes through different things, you know? Um, so, to me, that's what it's all about. You know, it's about education. It's about learning. Um, and it's about us all just trying to make the world a more comfortable place for all of us as individuals to live in. Um, so, you know, again, I, I've never taken offence to anything uh, that anyone's ever said towards me unless it was malicious, mm. you know, because people say stuff without realising that they're, they're causing offence, you know. and And to me what's the crime is it's the crime's ignorance so we need to do something about that you know and like i say I, again it's about pulling people in instead of pushing them away and i think in 2021 um we're so good at pushing people away when they don't agree with our opinion or they say something that we don't like you know and i think we just need to pull people in and have that conversation um so so yeah i hope that's answered the question i know it's gone gone like i i have this I do want to apologize. Like, I know like a lot of people get wound up when I, when I kind of, um, you know, talk in long form about things, but you know, when I'm passionate about something, I don't know if there's any other way to talk about things, you know, and I'm passionate about professional wrestling and I'm passionate about, you know, my color and, and, and kind of, you know, trying to be a voice now, because like to me before I've always taken a back seat, you know, I've never, I've never been one to stand up for stuff like that. And don't get me wrong. I'm not going to stand up and shout from the rooftops about it. I'm not going to mm. be someone who's defined by, because I don't think anyone should be defined by their race. I don't think anyone should be defined by their sexuality or their religion or their sexual or their sex or you know any of that stuff. I don't think that we should be defined by, you know, any of that stuff. We should be defined by the way we live on this earth. You know, the, the achievements, the people we help, you know, the, the stuff we learn, that what we leave behind for the next generation, that's what we should be judged by. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, yeah, hopefully that's answered your question and, and, and yeah. please, I'm, I'm happy to answer more and I'm happy to, you know, wh- 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 whatever direction you want to go, you know. No, no. And um, thank you for answering that. You know, obviously it's really open my eyes, especially when you said that about the light bulb and everything. Um, I suppose to, to stay you know on the same subject sorry i didn't want to make it too serious for you but you know there's uh there's always a, a lot of discourse about um black wrestlers and and there's not enough prominent black wrestlers when they when there should be more i just wanted to get your uh, thoughts on that now i'm probably going to say something very controversial here um and <laughs> I, it makes me feel like, do I want to say this? But I'm going to say it, right? I think a lot of it is a load of bollocks, right? Do you know what I hate more than anything? I hate seeing the list of, and again, I guess I know it comes from good intention people, but I hate seeing a list of these wrestlers are black. Book them. Why? Why should you book them on your show? Because they're black. Why should you book someone on their show because of their sexuality? We're not doing a box ticking exercise here. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. to me, 
I never, ever, ever want to be employed for a job because of the color of my skin. I want to be employed for a job because of my ability to do the job, right? I also never want to find myself in a position where I'm second guessing myself and saying, am I on this show just because I'm black? Never do I want to find myself in that position and never do I want any of my wrestlers to find themselves in that position. The reason why you should be booked on a professional wrestling show is because of merit. And I firmly believe, can we be doing more to to shine light on those that are on the shows that are doing great things? Absolutely, we can. But you know what I mean? You, You can't be booking people. Like I always say, like if you're taking the place of someone on a show, you should be able to do the same job or better than that person on the show that, that, that you're replacing, right? I don't think it's a case of, you know, we're handing out um, prizes for, oh, you just so happen to be the lucky one that was born with this colour skin, therefore we're going to promote you to a position you don't deserve, you know? And, I'm, and again, I'm not saying that the, that's the reason behind these lists, but what I'm saying is, um, you know, we have to take it, in context, I hate more than anything fans. You know, you see like a poster come out, a poster for a show come out, and you get fans jumping it already and say, where's a person of colour on that poster? Do you know what I mean? I used to hate the role of the token black guy in the movies, and I never knew why, but now I know why. Because it's a token black guy. You've got to have a black guy to tick that box, tick that Hollywood box who's inevitably going to be the best friend of the main character or die at some point. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I just, I, I just hate it. I want people to be there on merit. And there's many fantastic men and women who are of colour who deserve to be seen and, and, and put on shows and, and raised up. Um, but they deserve to be there because of their talent and their ability. And they deserve to be treated like any other wrestler on the show. And they deserve to be treated, they deserve not to be a stereotype. They deserve not to be there to tick a box. You know, I hate it that that's what, you know, it's almost like positive discrimination. And I'm sure that if you spoke to anyone, you know, they wouldn't want to be there just to fill a quota, right? And don't get me wrong, there's nothing I love more than seeing, you know, I, and, I, and, and again, I was a young black guy who was inspired by Ron Simmons winning the WCW Heavyweight Championship, right? There's nothing I like more than, be, than you know, seeing young children in the crowd who see someone who looks like them, who's doing it at a high level, succeed, right? But they need to be there because of their ability. You know, it'd be like saying, like, you know, like, again we i guess the race issues come up a lot in football you know and you look at the england football team and how many people of color are in the england football team but why are they in the england football team are they there because they're black or are they there because they're good football players they're there because they're good football players because mm. if they weren't good football players they wouldn't be in the team so you know that that to me is what it's all about right and and again I feel like I can speak on this. I don't feel I can speak on many other subjects, but like, I don't need people fighting our battles for us. Like in a sense of, you know, there doesn't need to be white knights calling out people for, you've got no black people on your show. That's not necessary. 
right? However, what is more positive, the positive reinforcement is highlighting black professional wrestlers who are good. You know, like, uh, I just think that it, it doesn't always have to be a battle, you know? It can be a nice discussion. And many times there might be very well-intentioned wrestling promoters who are getting called out for not having people of colour on their professional wrestling show who haven't even thought about it, who haven't even thought that, you know, we need to put people of colour on our show. And it's one of these things where it's almost like a patience thing, you know, and um, whereby you can only put on... Okay, so... How many people of color? So, so if we look at the, the Revolution Pro Wrestling Portsmouth School of Wrestling as an example, right? And we look at our trainee shows as an example, right? The people of color on those trainee shows can only be those that come through the doors of a training school. So it may cre- it may mean that we need, you know, if it's if if, if the sport is very much a uh, you know full of you know white people, Caucasian males, whatever that's going to be the majority that come through the door of a training school. And it may create, it may mean that we need, for example, a Michael Oku to enliven, you know, or to, to capture the imagination of a public, you know, it, that may be the case. Uh, and, and would you say, I, would you say Michael Oku is criminally underused to someone who is a uh, by merit alone? I mean, speaking personally, he's been like the highlight of the red pro shows most recently. But he, he seems to be a, a, a wrestler mainly based down south when pre-pandemic he was absolutely everywhere. Um, well, I think that, that I don't I can't I can't answer that question, really, um, because I think there's probably other reasons why people may not be using Michael Oku, um, which, you know, but like I believe that Michael Oku is, you know, one of the most talented professional wrestlers in the country right now in the, in the world, even. You know, and I think that um, I, I, again, like I've only ever booked Michael Oku as a professional wrestler. I've never booked him as a black professional wrestler. So I can't really comment on reasons why people will or won't book him and, and where he should or shouldn't be, you know, but I can tell you right now uh, with absolute confidence that Michael Oku is one of the best wrestlers in the world right now. And if Michael, in, if you're trying to put on a professional wrestling show featuring the best wrestlers, why would you not feature Michael Oku? You know, he's one of the absolute best. Um, so, you know, like, again, and one of the hardest working as well, you know, and I think that that's something that people don't realise and don't understand. So the reason why Michael got to where he got to in Revolution Pro Wrestling so quickly is because he was one of the guys who came to help set up the ring and he'd take tickets on the door um, and he would be security, he would be a cameraman, he would... You know, he he would do whatever it took. He'd take people's jackets backstage, you know. Um, He would literally do any job, the music, whatever the job was, he would do. But he would do it legitimately in the sense of like, a lot of people say, oh, is it all right to come out and help at this show? And they'll come once and not get anything from it and then not bother coming back. Um, Or they'll come once and they're not really want to help out of the show. They either want a free ticket to the show or they want to get in front of myself. But Mike Loku is one of the people who came, worked hard, and, and, you know, put his head down and, and, and put the effort in. And he's someone, when he's not wrestling, he's at a training school. He was training in Portsmouth on Saturday. He was in, at the Portsmouth School of Wrestling on Saturday, training with our trainees. Um, 
because he's someone who puts the work in. And the only way you get better at this is by putting the work in. So, you know, how can you not want that work ethic? How can you not want that level of ability on your professional wrestling show? Um, and I feel that, you know, anyone who's, is, who's kind of overlooking him, that's kind of their loss, you know? Um, and I think that, you know, how do you book a Michael Oku? You book him like a professional wrestler. You know, I don't know. I don't know really know what more to say. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that. He, and, and and again, he is wrestling like he's working a lot, but maybe just, you know, he's doing like the Wrestle Force shows, you know, so he's, mm. he's still getting his reps in. Like, just because you might not read about it on the Internet, like he's still getting his reps in. So. Um, so, yeah, he's still a very busy professional wrestler. All right. That's good. That's good to hear. Um, thank you. Obviously, I really appreciate you uh, talking on those subjects. Uh, really, you know, obviously something you're really passionate about but something i just wanted to obviously you know red pro has been running for a number of years now and there's a variety of things you know that have happened in red pro you've had names coming in and out of the promotion you know some huge names and stuff and i know that bret hart was always like um you know a big inspiration for you and you, you managed to get to work for him work with him rather he came over and did a q a and a couple of times didn't he for you yeah yeah i've used him a couple of times yeah i'm um, yeah We've done a couple of Q and A's together, um, maybe three or four autograph signings, free show appearances, um, and yeah, he's that's uh, for me. Bret Hart was my hero growing up. Um, he's someone who made wrestling real for me in a in an age of cartoon characters. Bret Hart was a real professional wrestler. Bret Hart was the first professional wrestler where I genuinely cared if he won or lost. Um, he's the first professional wrestler that I saw ever change tact. So. You know, if he worked Diesel, for example, he'd work as a subtle heel, you know, because he it wasn't like he was working as a heel. He was doing what he had to take. The odds were stacked against him. He was working a much bigger, stronger man. And he he had to do what it took to, to win this man because winning the, to beat this man, because winning that professional wrestling match meant the world to him. And, you know, for me. And, and, and again, like, you know, when you meet him and, and people say like Bret Hart took himself too seriously. Really? Well, why does why is it that Bret Hart's prob- probably if you look at that day and age and you look at week in, week out, can you think of another professional wrestler whose work stands up to this day to that level? Mm. And like, I think that Bret Hart, a lot of Bret Hart's matches are matches where, you know, perhaps on the night it wasn't the match of the night. Right. So I always look at WrestleMania 10 as a big example. Right. On the night, it was Sean and Razor Ladder match was your match of the night on the night. But looking back at it with 2021 eyes, having seen all the different ladder matches that have happened, what match was the best match? Bret Hart and Owen Hart. His wrestling stands up to this day. Um, And he's someone who always struck me um, as someone who has had integrity about him, um, about his character when it came to, you know, giving his words as a professional wrestler. Um, And, you know, he took the business very seriously. Um, he took the health and safety of his his peers very seriously. Um, and to me, you know, I always use a cliche, you know, don't meet your heroes because you're just going to be disappointed. But for me, Bret Hart, you know, I wasn't disappointed at all. And he's someone, you know, you see so many times, you see so many times wrestlers who are like, you know, acting like their best mate with the fans and then the fan walks off and it's like, yeah, wanker, whatever, you know. <laughs> Bret Hart, loves his fans bret hart would 
you know, you've always got to book an extra hour for a Bret Hart meet and greet because he will take mm. time with every single fan. It doesn't matter how tired he is. It doesn't matter how long he'd been sat on a plane beforehand. He will take time with every single fan and every single wrestler in the back as well. You know, not just a show for the fans. It's for the boys as well. You know, I've been very lucky to have gone to dinner with Brett on several occasions. Um, and just some of the, uh, my best experiences in professional wrestling, you know, just hearing him telling the stories about the old days, answering any question I had, <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, he's, he's just, uh, that's one of the biggest perks about this job, you know, for me being able to, to work with a hero like Bret Hart. And, you know, there's been many people I've been just privileged to work with. Um, Kurt Angle's an example of someone I was absolutely privileged to work with. Um, you know, it was the craziest time was working with Vader. Um, but I had so many phone conversations with Vader, which I absolutely treasure, you know, like the whole thing was crazy, the whole experience. But um, we had so many wonderful phone conversations uh, where, you know, he said to me, he was like, I'm lonely, you know, and he wanted to, he just wanted someone to talk to. And like, I was more than happy to hear about the time he wrestled Sting. You know, I was more than happy to, you know, listen to the forward to his book three times, you know, like just those experiences are, are kind of experiences that you treasure and it's kind of rare. You don't really get to, to show that side of wrestling. Um, but you know, there's some real beautiful moments which are created from, from such a horrible business. <laughs> <laughs> was the uh, Vader Osprey show, was that the biggest house you've ever done at your call? Mm, I'm not sure I can confirm or deny that fact. Right, because I was going to say watching it and be, yeah, it did seem like that was the most packed it's ever been. Oh, I don't want to. I can't, you know. We had a lot of people in. Okay. (laughs) I'll leave it at that then. Yeah, I can't, you know. We we were at capacity um, that night. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I mean, you mentioned Sting there. Um, Didn't you have a bit of a nightmare in his Q&A because he couldn't remember much about the WrestleWar 92 and things like that? Oh, that wasn't wasn't a nightmare. That was a (laughs) a hell of a... I loved it. I loved it. it. Sting was great. Sting was absolutely great. But like, yeah, like uh, someone asked in a Northern accent, asked about the Dangerous Alliance and Sting had no recollection of who they were. But I thought that because of the... I thought it was the accent he was getting confused on. So like Sting was like, kind of like, excuse me. And then it's, it's annoying. I didn't tape it. Like I should have just taped it for my personal reference. Um, but like we said, we said we wouldn't tape it and, and release it. Um, so I was just like, I don't want to, you know, mess up the deal on the first night. So we didn't have, we didn't tape it. So maybe someone taped it on their phone or something. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I said like, uh, you know, he, he said, excuse me. And the guy like said, dangerous Alliance again and sting looked blankly. And I just kind of wanted to translate in my Southern accent to sting might understand, you know, dangerous Alliance. And he was like, who? And I was like, Paul Heyman, Paulie dangerously, Steve Austin, Larry Zabisco. He just looked at me blankly. No recognition <laughs> whatsoever. And at that time I was just like, well, I'm glad you took wrestling as seriously as I did back in the day. That would have broken my heart, you know, um, yeah. but that was a very different sting in that, you know, in the, in that in the, those nineties, there was a very different sting, and I'm sure he would tell you that himself, and um, than the sting which is around today. But um, but again, Sting was an absolute gent, and uh, you know we had fun doing the Q and A, or I did anyway. Um, absolutely in my element, chatting to another one of my childhood heroes, um, 
I had to reveal to him that, you know, I had one of those rat tails, you know, the little ponytail that Sting mm. had. I had like an afro with like a um, one of those ponytails at the back. Wow. to Sting. What a what a haircut that was. Um, but um, but yeah, it was it was great. And it, I love working with those guys. And I hope we can, you know, I, I, I do hope that I can I can do some more with those guys in the future, you know, with the legends of wrestling um, and then can do some more because I love conversing with them because, you know, I I. I Again, ultimately, it comes down to being a wrestling fan. And I'm, I feel like I'm perhaps the ultimate wrestling fan um, that does a very good job of hiding his, uh, the ultimate wrestling fan because I have to have that poker business face all the time, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Well, um, obviously, you know, Red Pro quite synonymous with New Japan. You've been on record before saying, you know, it was originally Prince Devitt who opened that door for you, bringing Liger in originally. And then, you know, you took it, you, you took it from there. But... Um, in terms of like the sort of like bigger global war shows, when you start bringing more and more New Japan guys over, was that um, a risk for you at the time? Because obviously, that, I seem to remember, wasn't it um, going to be you and another promoter bringing yeah. over? It was like twenty New Japan guys all that wasn't, ago. That was never my idea. That was never my idea at all. So, like, I always wanted to um, just bring over a couple of guys at a time because I was afraid that what wound up happening in the end would happen where people just took it for granted. Um, mm. So, you know, and I feel like I don't want to say I told you so, but I told you so I, every time someone came over, I'd say, don't take it for granted. You all took it for granted and look where we are now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. and, and we look back at those days as well. And again, a lot of those shows were sold out. Don't get me wrong, but I feel like, uh, you know, if it wasn't like, oh, you know, I can see Ishii next month or I can see Suzuki next month. You know, we might have been a, a, in a position where we could have moved to, you know, that next level venue, that ice arena, that, that Coventry Sky Dome that we spoke about at the, the beginning of the interview. See, that's that's a pro that is, bringing it back full circle. Indeed. Um, but, um, but yeah, like, I, I it, it was never my intention to bring it over all the guys all at once, um, especially that weekend. Um, but basically, this guy, I'm not going to mention his name, because every time I do, I wind up getting death threats. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that, that's, wow. <laughs> that's the truth. Um, but this, uh, uh, you know, this guy um, was, was going to bring over loads of guys. Um and I was running a show that weekend and I'd basically I'd called, I'd messaged Tiger Hattori and said, Hey, can I get someone this weekend? And he's like, Oh, actually we're bringing these, we're bringing all the, all these guys over. And I was like, Oh my God, this is my worst fears come to life because the odds of this turning out well are slim to none. And basically what Tiger wound up saying was like, look, you can use the guys on the same weekend. Um, and he did me a, a deal. Uh, he was like, you add a show and you can use everyone on that show. Um, and then we'll send you a few boys for the, the, the York Hall show. And you pay the same money for, for both shows. Like, so the guys essentially work for York Hall show as a bonus to kind of, you know, help make it more affordable for me. Um, and, uh, so that's why I wound up committing to do it and also knowing that I'd be going halves, hopefully, with the other promoter. But then the other promoter pulled out, um, you know, a few weeks before the show, leaving me to foot the bill for everyone. And then I wound up taking everyone on both shows. Um, and 
salvaging the deal and probably salvaging the chance of anyone in the UK having mm. any uh, being able to see any New Japan talent in the UK. Because, you know, you had guys like uh, Jushin Thunder Liger was scheduled to come over many times in the UK and it always fell through. So the first time was you had New Japan guys with the Fight Club Pro lot, that Independence Day fell through. You had Dave Sharp for FW was going to book Jushin Liger, fell through. Um, this happened fell through you then had later on a lot later on you had what culture and late payment for um uk guys where i had to wind up chasing the payment and getting them to pay me so then i could pay new japan what they owe new japan you know so um it, it's it's a relationship which is tough you know and if it wasn't for and again like i i try to say to people people don't understand the way uh the way it works but like um you know, um, I saw people write horrible things about me going, wouldn't it be great if New Japan worked with anyone but Andy Quilden? Well, you know, that was that was like, great, well done, brilliant, cheers. Um, <laughs> that's when people were going through their phase of hating on me, and which I guess still happens from time to time. Um, but, um, you know, like the years of work that was put into that relationship and salvaging um, seemingly unsalvageable situations, because, you know, if something bad happens in England, it looks bad on all of England. It's not like, oh, that happens at what culture? It's uh, that happened in England. Let's not send guys to England anymore. And it, so that's why, you know, it's so important to maintain those relationships and do good. And I say, like, people always say, like, how can you work with, you know, I remember when I booked LA Park. Hmm, can't wait for LA Park to ruin the Rev Pro show and, <laughs> like you must have seen them you know people were people were licking their lips rubbing their hands together hoping that something bad happened to me like the time riptide broke my wrestling ring people were like ah oh, what i find the funniest about this situation is rev pro now have no ring for their cockpit show <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah like, sorry i'm laughing yeah i shouldn't from. really <laughs> like just ridiculous levels and uh yeah, but the reason why like the LA Park deal went smoothly and the reason why every deal I do go smoothly is because we're professional with the way we go about doing stuff, you know? Um, so that's the reason why our relationship with New Japan has stood the test of time. And it's something whereby we walked before we could run and it's grown bigger and bigger. Um, you know, the, our involvement with them and our relationship with them has grown bigger and bigger um, as, as a kind of as we've helped grow New Japan's trust in us. But, you know, it's a it's a business relationship. It's not like, again, I, I reiterate time and time again, it's not something whereby like New Japan are paying us any money or, or anything like that. We pay New Japan every time we use talent. We pay them. It's a business relationship um, that we keep um, very professional um, and we and we're very much their partners um and we we appreciate everything we do with them um but you know it's uh i don't know some people just look at stuff real weirdly and get really strangely possessive and are really mm. horrible to me for no reason but um <laughs> but yeah so uh it's it's just one of those things um so tiger hattori is quite um you know a famous figure you know in new japan i know eric bischoff's talked about him quite a bit on his podcast have you got any sort of like what's your dealing been like with tiger got any funny tiger hattori stories um hmm well everyone knows tiger everyone who knows tiger knows that it's got a tiger hattori impression but i'm not going to do it because mine's pretty uh 
Mine's pretty <laughs> bad. But Tiger would always call me. I'm sure that it was a rib, but maybe I maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But Tiger Hattori, especially in the early days, would call me in the middle of the night. And I always and like I'd have my phone on her. Uh, I smartened up to it. <laughs> like at first. So I remember the deal with Jushin Liger was like done at like three o'clock in the morning because I was so, you know, I was on it. Like he'd be like, oh, I'll phone you today. And I'd like have my phone by my ear and whatever. So the deal with Liger was done at like three in the morning. Um, and I, but countless times I've woken up in the middle of the night um, and run downstairs so I don't wake up my wife to talk to Tiger on the phone. Um, and he'd do this thing. So I'd put my phone on like a sleep mode. Right. And, uh, he'd, he'd recognize that he could call me the first time he'd call me, it'd go through to, you know, this person's currently unavailable, but if you rang a second or third time, you could get through and every time he'd do it and he'd always do it FaceTime as well. Like, uh, and, uh, but he'd do FaceTime video also. Do you know what I mean? So like, (laughs) You'd see, you know, you see you're like half asleep, whatever. And I swear it was a rib because like we could easily make the time difference work um, so that it was either my morning, his night or vice versa. But um, but yeah, um, but he's a real character, but he's also someone who's uh, he's helped me so much. I can't be more thankful. Mm. He's perhaps one of the most. Um, uh, I'd say one of the people I owe the most thanks to. Um uh, he's old school, you know, um, and he recognizes, you know, like I mean, when I first met him, he was like, I'm not doing an impression. I'm sorry. But he's <laughs> just like, oh, you know, like you're young, you know, he's like, you're going to be huge in this business. It's not come true yet. but um, <laughs> Like, like uh, contract from Rikishi. Yeah, it's not. Come yeah, true right. Yet, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was like saying to me, like, you know, to achieve all of this at such a young age, you know, you're going to be big in this business. Like, you know, just keep and, like, just so that to that to me was like perhaps the biggest seal of approval um that uh, that i've had you know um from tiger and he's you know he'd always go back to the like all the boys would tell you like you know any of the international boys like would come at like so you know like a juice or jy or finley or you know any of the, the you know the god whoever you know like it's they'd be like you know tiger always talks about you you know says what good kid you are you know like and i it's just so um yeah it's just it's just nice to be able to have you know that relationship with him and um you know have built his trust um because he's you know like i say he's just one of the the greatest guys and it was aj styles who told me you know like this is you know tiger he was the first aj was the first person who told me how how well tiger spoke of me and obviously coming from aj as well that meant mm-hmm. a lot um so you know, again, just I I can't emphasize enough. You know what a what a positive influence Tiger Hattori has been on my professional wrestling career uh, in Revolution Pro Wrestling. Um, yeah, like much of again, I, I I don't I always like to think that I'll find a way. So I don't know what Revolution Pro Wrestling would look like without our relationship with New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, but I know that it's a lot better with it. Um, and you can thank Tiger Hattori for that. Moving sort of like, this is the last question, and um, moving sort of like more home-based, um, I know obviously, you know, you've got the Portsmouth School of Pro Wrestling, and that's where you're predominantly going to, you know, be looking at for uh, people to use on shows. But I was wondering, how do you sort of scout 
British talent? Is there? Do you are you watching tapes from sort of like smaller promotions? Are you getting recommendations off people? How do you decide? You know who's going to be the next sort of like up and coming British uh, people to be on your on Red Pro shows? There's no one size fits all answer. Um, so obviously I'm bringing people up through the wrestling school, but that's not the only way. But I mean, we have had quite a few guys who come through. Um, so like coming through the wrestling school, who, I mean, we've, we've had quite a few guys who've come and trained at the wrestling school um, who t- to put themselves in front of me, essentially. Um, I come to, I go to a lot of sessions at the school. Um, I do a, a lot. Um, I mean, I used to, I was at more, um, before the pandemic. Um, but I'm, I'm not as, as many now, but uh, you know, certainly any Saturday that I'm, I'm not at shows, I'll be at the school. Um, and, uh, I, I try to, and I work a lot with people as well. Um, so yeah, we've had a lot of guys who come to the school to, to just put themselves in front of me. And, and, and again, I feel like when you do something like that, that then gives me, helps me make the effort to then watch more of your stuff if that makes sense it's like Mm. you felt you felt that it's worth your time to travel how many hours to to Portsmouth to come to our wrestling school for an opportunity just to be put in front of me essentially or to learn that's going to pique my interest and attention um so that's one thing um there's other other things as well. So obviously I, 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 I consume as much media as possible. So I listen to podcasts, you know, if, so if you're, if you're putting people over on your podcasts, you know, um, that, that works a lot. Um, so that's probably going to help you boys out, isn't it? You, you get, you're going to get people to slip us a tenner and put me over on your podcast. <laughs> um, but you know, so like, um, I, I, I listen to podcasts a lot. Um, and, uh, and listen to their uh, opinions. I look at trends on social media. So like, I'll look at, you know, if a show happens, so like, if, 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 you know, I, I, I kind of know what's happening on the scene at all times. Right. But if a show happens, so for example, um, you know, there's a show happens and people are talking about the young guns, you know, it's, there's a buzz about the young guns and I'm like, okay, right. We reference that name young guns. Right. And then like, you know, it consistently happens. And I'm like, well, there's a pattern emerging here. So it's time to kind of get on this young guns bandwagon and check them out and see what we can do with them, you know? Um, and then, and, and with, with someone like the young, so to me, like it's about trying to understand the wrestler and see what I, where I feel like I can get the most out of them. And I feel like, a, um, you know, identifying where I can highlight their strengths um, and help them improve any perceived weaknesses. Um, so that's what I'm always looking to do. I'm always looking to develop talent as well. I'm not looking to just bring in like a, um, you know, a, uh, the finished product, you know, I'm more, I'm more interested in. So for example, again, the, like a Ricky Knight Jr. For example, Ricky Knight Jr. Is someone who he will tell you himself. He messaged me. I've never been pestered so much in my life. Message me, message me again, message me again, message me again, message me again. Got boys to fucking put him over, you know, like, Mm. hey andy check out ricky knight jr hey andy ricky knight jr says can you check him out like whatever you know um and he was just persistent and he was so persistent and again like i'd only seen i'd only seen him in uh five-star wrestling right where i like he'll tell you himself he wasn't the it wasn't the best and it wasn't the best 
environment for him to highlight himself. Um, and then I was like, maybe I saw it. I even saw him in person in America. He was with Paige. Um, and she introduced me to him and was like, you need to book him. And I was like, yeah, I should. Yeah, I'm going to. And then didn't. <laughs> and he still kept per- persisting. And then I was like, okay, let's look at your stuff. You know, one day, like, again, like I'm a real difficult person. Sometimes you might have experienced it if you ever messaged me, but sometimes you've got my phone in my hand. When you message me, I'll get back to you straight away. Right. But sometimes, you know, if I don't have my phone in my hand, I might see the message and then 101 other things happen, which is just, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, it's just where I'm at. Like, uh, like I do, I can't emphasize enough how, what a one man shop rev pro is. And we're trying to change it. We'd started to build a team before this stupid pandemic ruined everything. And we're trying to kind of get back to having a team. Um, but like I do everything. So like, um, you know, every, I don't know, every aspect of revolution pro wrestling you see, I do apart from the really, really good graphics, the, the not so good mm. graphics I do. You'll be able to pick out, pick mm. which ones I've done and which ones our, our great graphic designer Mohammed has done. Um, but like, um, I do everything. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't, just stuff piles up, right? And uh, it's like, you know, when we started this interview, I told you I was still at the office. I've been going since 6 a.m. And uh, and we're now at 9 p.m., mm. right? And um, and I do, I, I, it's just nonstop. And I, so you have to be persistent with me, with your messages, <laughs> basically. And Ricky, like, Jr. was. And then, like, I watched him and instantly I was like, right, we need to give him a shot straight away. Just give him a shot. Let's see how we go. And obviously it was around the same time as the Southside stuff. So it kind of tied in quite nicely anyway, but like he had one match for me. And like a lot of time that's, that's the opportunity, you know, that one match opportunity to see how you get on. Mm. Um, And like, I always say to people as well. So like, you know, my trainees get frustrated very often because I say, I'm not picking you because you're my trainee right so when you see someone so like i'll give you an example like a dan mcgee as an example he's probably someone you're like oh dan mcgee whatever like dan mcgee's a real deal right dan mcgee's great right um if you watch his match with eddie kingston his match with dan maloney recently um his matches with Charles samuels like dan mcgee can go right and he's on the shows he's not on the shows because he came from the portsmouth school of wrestling he's on the shows because he can go right he still needs to find himself a little bit. And when he finds himself, he'll be a top, top, top guy. Unfortunately, he hasn't had, I don't believe he's had the opportunities uh, outside of Rev Pro that he deserves. High profile. Because again, he's another guy who works. But, you know, he works your, your lesser known promotions. And I don't feel like he's had, you know, the, the um, you know, the shine on him that he deserves. Um, but he's deceptively big. He's, he moves so well. He's, you know, he's got great intensity to him and he knows the job inside out. He knows the job. Um, but uh, I say to the guys, the only way you get onto the Rev Pro shows, like, so it's not like a lot of people, you know, are like, well, if we don't go on Rev Pro shows, then there's something wrong because we've gone through the Rev Pro training school. So we should be on the main shows. It's like, no, it doesn't work like that. You can get on the trainee shows through hard work. You don't have to be the best wrestler to get on the trainee shows. You'll get an opportunity to prove, improve and become a great wrestler on the trainee shows. 
But then to get onto the main shows, you're no longer competing against each other. And I say it to the contenders as well. When you're in the contenders division, at first you're competing against each other. But once you break away from the contenders division, you're not competing against each other anymore. You're competing against Will Ospreay, Mark Davis, Kyle Fletcher, Speedball Mike Bailey, um, you know, whoever else is on the show. You know, you're competing against the best wrestlers in the world, right? So, you know, so even if you get that opportunity, you have to have something special. And Ricky Knight Jr. clearly had something special from the get-go. And he was someone who evolved and moved forward very quickly. And sometimes there's guys who I'm like, ah, you're kind of nearly there, but maybe not all the way there. So we'll give you another go. Or we'll bring you back in six months' time. Or I'm going to put you in a little program and we'll see how you get on. And it's like sink or swim, you know, in this little program, right? And maybe that little program might not work, but I've seen what you can do and we can see what you need to improve on. And then it's like, right, go away and work on this and then come back when you're, you know, when you've worked on it, because I've seen you've got enough potential there, but it's just not a case of being able to walk straight onto shows. And I think that that's like, um, you know, I saw, you know, all the Brit Rez's dead brigade. Um, and I, you know, I agree with a lot of the sentiment because a lot of the sentiment is you've got all these guys and girls who haven't got the experience on the bigger stage. And that's not from, um, not, that's not from want of trying. And then again, there's nothing wrong with being inexperienced, but you need to work with people who are experienced in order to get better. And you can't bring everyone all in, in one go. Uh, and that's why when we, you know, when we kind of, um, you know, did the empty arenas and we started bringing in new faces, I leant back towards some good hands. So some Joel Redmond's, some Charlie Sterling's, Mark Haskins, right? The guys who are good hands, guys who know how to work, right? That's why when I was looking for a, a new kind of heel to bring in, we looked at Screwface Ahmed because he's someone who's worked for Brian Dixon. He's worked hundreds of matches every single year. He knows the job inside out, right? He might not be the most spectacular guy, right? But he's a very, very solid professional wrestler who knows the job. But you bring him in and you put him on with someone else and you're going to like someone who's new, who doesn't know the job, but has got a lot of um, potential and you get great results. You know, look at Screwface Ahmed versus Adam Maxed as an example. Probably Adam Maxed's best showing in Rev Pro because he was working an old head. You know, he was working someone who's, you know, who's got that experience, you know, and then you look at him and Dan Maloney, not so good. Right. And it's not because and Dan Maloney's fantastic, a fantastic professional wrestler, but he's still at a very early stage in his professional wrestling career. He can be a top guy and he will be a top guy. But again, he's, you know, he's at that early stage of his career um, where, he, you know, just before lockdown, he was starting to become, you know, we were starting to see he's going to be a guy in the future, you know, um, and, you know, and, he, and I'm sure he will get to that stage. You know, but you, it's it's a case of it's not Dan Maloney needs to be working those guys as well. You know, Dan Maloney needs to be working the best guys also, right? That Dan Maloney does not need to be working guys who are you know who've not worked uh, you know big shows in front of and again different styles of shows who've not worked that show in front of you the internet audience before who've not worked the high pressure shows before because they are high pressure shows and I say to people a lot of the time you're putting too much pressure on yourself. You know, you just need to let yourself go. I've had wrestlers who have been world beaters on camp shows in front of 1200 people. And you put them in front of 200 people at the cockpit and all of a sudden they have stage fright. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. how can you wrestle in front of 1200 people and now in front of 200? And it's because they put so much pressure on themselves. And, 
is because they, they know that, that that what they do is consequential, you know, because um, there are eyeballs watching it. There are podcasts reviewing it, <laughs> you know. Um, it, it will go on. on I think you're giving us far too much credit there, Andy. But well, I you know you you say that, but like I think that you're you're perhaps you guys perhaps don't realize uh, um you know the 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 reach that you have, and when I say the reach you have, I mean like in terms of you know probably the majority of the people that listen to your podcast are workers. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone wants to know uh, what other people think about them. Not everyone is ready to hear what other people think about them. Mm. Um, and there's many times when I listen to, and I'm not singly, I'm not saying your podcast in particular. Um, there's many times when I listen to podcasts and I hear people say stuff about Rev Pro, and I'm like, if only you knew the context, you know, if only you knew um, what we're planning, if only you knew the circumstances behind this event or why this doesn't go that well. And there's many times when I want to be like, yes, I know, I agree with you. Let's stop talking about it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, and, but that's the beauty of it. And like, I love it. I love it. And I feel like everyone deserves to have an opinion. And I say, like, I try not to. So I try not to get involved with um, reading. I, I found like a, there's lots of negativity um, on, on the internet, as you may well know. So lots of in, in, there's lots of negativity. Um, you know, you're, you're going to hear if someone has a bad match and someone and then that same person has a good match, you're going to hear far more about the bad match than the good match, as an example. Um, and I feel like um, I try to stay away from that. But because I try to stay away from that, I also have to try and stay away from the positive stuff as well, because mm-hmm. otherwise you put yourself in your own echo chamber where you only listen to people saying good things. Now, I have people who listen to stuff and read stuff and report back stuff who've got no emotional attachment to this. Right. So I've got an emotional attachment to it. This is my baby. So I will get Mm. upset. Right. They've got no emotional attachment to it and they will listen into it rationally and then feed back to me the stuff that I should listen to (laughs) or feed back the, you know, Oh, people have been saying this or people have been saying that or you should listen to this podcast, or you should read this article, or you look at this thread on Twitter as an example. So I have people who do that for me because I know I can't, I'm too emotionally invested to rationally be able to, to, to read and listen to this stuff. Um, you know, and, 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 and that's the last place I want to be. I don't want to be, I don't want to become one of those guys who, you know, someone's who people are scared to give their true opinion of and of their product because, um, because they know they'll get shot down for it. Like many promotions are guilty of that. You know, the second you say something bad about a wrestler or, you know, a promotion or a show, it's a big pile on, isn't it? How dare you say that? You don't know a thing, you know? And that's why I said, you know, the Brute Res is dead chat. I thought it was an interesting discourse. So I thought it was something that would be interesting to discuss rather than you either had two camps. You had a camp of horrible people who were just like, yeah, Brit Res is dead. Fuck Brit Res. And who, who actually just hated British wrestling. I hate the term Brit Res as well. To me, Brit Res is a dirty term, right? Mm. It, it, <laughs> it embodies everything I hate about British professional wrestling. Um, but um, but there you go. Right? You won't hear me saying Brit Res. Um, but uh, I think that, um, yeah, you have people who just love to get on a pylon who will be like, yeah, it is. Or you get people who get uber defensive and be like, no, it's not. Look at wrestler X who's had two matches and stole the show both times. Right. And get overly defensive. Whereas I'm more of a course of like, 
let's have a discussion about that because it's interesting you say that and i'm interested in that narrative because i'm interested in the fact of will you pay to see a wrestler that's only had two matches will you take my word that someone's decent um do you genuinely feel that you know, the shows aren't going to be as good anymore. Will you only attend shows with imports, et cetera, et cetera, to try and learn about the audience and try and say, well, I don't actually think it is dead because, you know, before the pandemic, we were doing like our record like numbers and we were on course to have the best year we've ever had with more shows than we've ever had. And, I, and whilst we may not get back to where we were straight away, there's every indication to suggest we can get back to where we are. And I also feel I've got a more depth ironically maybe not as much star power but more depth in my roster than i've ever had before um so you know so let's have that discussion i think that's that's the type of thing that can be had um Mm. but uh but yeah it's just it's it's interesting to see all that stuff yeah definitely and yeah like you said it's it's more interesting when it is a discussion rather than sort of like this is this side or that's the other but um and you like you say you've been going at it since uh not on this podcast obviously but working since 6 a.m so i'll let you get off um obviously red pro have been um touring around the uk all summer um what dates are left uh to come and, and what other stuff do you want to plug well funny story i was going to add loads more dates but i'm knackered so uh <laughs> left it where it is for the rest of the year but we've got this i don't know when this is going out but this weekend we're in stevenage with the british j cup on sunday we're back in london at the 229 and um, then we've got events uh throughout the the um the year well the year the year what's left of the year december i guess um mm. we're in uh oh we've, sorry we got um we're in uh huntingdon I've, I've, I've skipped the end of November. We were in Huntingdon on November 20th for a double header. Um, and then on the 21st, back at York Hall Bethnal Green for Uprising 2021. Um, and then we've got um, back in 229, December 5th, um, we're, which we've made the decision. You've heard it here first. We're back at 229. Um, cockpit, still scared of the COVID, it would seem. Um, <laughs> So, uh, had a, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, so I was, the, the conversation I have with, with the cockpit goes something like, um, when, when do you think we'll be able to get back with, um, you know, full capacity? Oh, I think it'll be by this date. And what makes you think that? Oh, I've just got a feeling. It's like, well, what are you measuring it on? Um, well, we'll know. We'll have a better idea by then. And then it's like, mm. you know, and it's like this date because everyone will be vaccinated by then. This date because all the teenagers will be vaccinated by then. <laughs> this date because then everyone will have had their booster shot. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I you know, the, your audience aren't going to be comfortable going in full capacity. And it's like, well, we we kind of been doing that, you know. Mm. Um, so I appreciate them wanting to keep everyone safe. I really do. But you know, like we have to, we have to try and live life, you know. Um, so. Uh, and and I feel like, you know, what's the point of staying alive if you can't live? You know, mm. I'm not suggesting you're going to die coming to one of my shows, by the way. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I it's we, we're back at the two two nine December fifth, um, and then we've got uh, we're in Southampton on December twelfth, Portsmouth on December eighteenth, and then on the twenty seventh. This is all off of the top of my head, by the way. Wow. On the twenty seventh of December. Uh, we've got a, a special Christmas show. It's a Monday. It's a bank holiday Monday in St. Neots. I want everyone to come to that show in St. Neots on December 27th. 
because I want to have a festive time with everyone. I think you're going to call it the fight before Christmas. Would be the fight after Christmas, wouldn't right, it? Right there, you go. Oh yeah, <laughs> the fight's two days removed from Christmas. Yeah, there you go. Um, That'd be an original title. But um, but yeah, I I I I hope we can have a celebration of professional wrestling because genuinely, like I is. I said so at some point in this in this discussion, this chat, um, that there's nothing better than professional wrestling, and 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 I remember I said at the the first show back, I I spoke to people at the cockpit, and I said, you know, like people say, like so there was a big debate about why should professional wrestling come back, right, and why why should it come back now, right, and my answer was always, well, why shouldn't it come back now, you know. Like I appreciate that professional wrestling is quite far down the pecking order when we talk about important things in life, right? But if football can come back, why can't pro wrestling come back? You know, mm. all the people. And again, I I speak to people all the time. You know, who without professional, and I, I guess it really struck home to me, especially with the kids' class at the wrestling school, the teenagers' class, and the parents um, who speak to me. You know, my child's like got no direction without wrestling. You know, like so thankful that we came back and were able to survive the pandemic. And I think for many people, including myself, including many of the wrestlers doing it, including many of the fans who come to see it. I know a lot of people have other things going on, but for a lot of people, wrestling is life. You know, it's their escape, their escape from the real world. Right. Why shouldn't people be able to have that sense of escapism and and so why could you know why are we putting like a an importance on wrestling below that of of other things you know um it's it, it just it befuddles me you know i i think sometimes the people that support wrestling or are the biggest wrestling fans are also the biggest d- detractors of professional wrestling who seem to sometimes want to see it fail you know like to me i i've only ever want to see professional wrestling to succeed and you know when i came back the first show back we did was a huge money loser for me after a year of huge money losses. It wasn't possible to make money. Everyone who worked the show got paid their full wage. We had half a capacity of the London cockpit and I didn't care, right? People might call me an idiot, but like, I felt like I had to do it. I felt like, um, you know, it was too important to not do it. I felt like I wanted to bring back some normality to people's lives. And I felt like after so many just crap months it was time to kind of start living again and and have some fun and remember what it used to be like remember that feeling because there's nothing like that feeling of being able to shout and clap your hands and stomp your feet let yourself go for that that time period and that's really what our whole time like it's been a whirlwind since we've been back i think um oh god knows how many shows it's over 20 shows i've promoted since we've been back um and you know, it's been a whole whirlwind since since we've been back, but there's been no. Uh, it, it, it's almost been like a party. There's been that party atmosphere at every single show um, where it has felt normal, and you know, and uh, and I I almost feel like we're at that stage now where it's you know we're back. Let's not take it for granted. You know, we might be at that stage where we're starting to take it for granted again. You know, so let's not take it for granted because who knows when it might get taken away. But that experience is just something else. Um, so really, I want to encourage you know everyone to come out and check out our shows. Um, you know, we've done. I I feel you know we've done a, a, a 
put a lot of focus into storytelling, which makes putting the shows on a lot harder. You know, can't just be like, that'd be a good match. But we put a lot of focus into storytelling. We put a lot of focus into making sure every match means something. Um, but we've also put a lot of focus into making sure the wrestling is, high as, is as high a quality as it's ever been. Um, and if you don't believe me, seamless plug, check out rpwondemand.com um, where you can check out all, well, all of our shows apart from the trainee shows um, that we've done since we've been back. Um, and there's a great selection of matches. I believe there's something for everyone there. Um, and, and like I say, like for, the, for those people that are attending our shows, there's just been that real feel good atmosphere. And I would love everyone who's listening to come and experience that feel good atmosphere. You know, there's no agendas. There's no, uh, you know, it's just like I say, it's a bunch of human beings hanging out together and a bunch of human beings performing professional wrestling matches to entertain other human beings. You know, it's just a real cool, cool atmosphere atmosphere and like if you follow the storylines and you get invested in the storylines you get a greater level of understanding but at the same time if you don't follow the sort of storylines you can go and just enjoy a standalone show and maybe start to get invested in the storylines um so we've done a lot to try and uh, you know keep our rosters unique to what else is going on in the uk um you know and um and I, I think it's really starting to show and, and starting to pay as I think we really have a, a lot more of an identity now. Um, and I'm so, so excited to what 2022 may bring. Um, and it, trust me when I'm saying like, you know, I'm almost blown away by the fact that we're approaching 2022. Like we've got venues bugging me saying, can we get some dates in the diary for next year? Well, oh my God, like I'm still in 2020. I'm still in my head. Still, my, my, <laughs> well, my head's still in like March, 2020. My body's now in like, God, November, 2026. I've aged that much in the last year, but, um, but I think we all have, but I think the, the, the secret to the youth of life is probably revolution pro wrestling shows. I don't know. <laughs> but like, <laughs> wow. uh, but like it's, it's certainly having a good time. Like, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm sure, I hope I don't just speak for myself when I say it's just so great to have pro wrestling back and not just rev pro as well, like shows up and down the country. Um, and I, I, you know, you know, I said time and time again, I saw people saying when, when shows were coming back, why would this show come back again? Why wouldn't it? Do you know what I mean? Just cause you don't watch it on the internet. You know, even if it draws 50 people, for those 50 people, it might be the best night of those 50 people's lives. I know the shows that I used to go go to when my family couldn't afford tickets to see WWE and we used to go and watch British wrestling shows. I know the shows were crap, right? But I had the time of my life watching those shows and they <laughs> legitimately made my life, right? And I, I, that's not an exaggeration. They made my life. As a child that didn't, you know... I did, we didn't go on holidays. I didn't have a lot to look forward to. I was loved. I, I had a great upbringing um, and, uh, and, and I couldn't have asked for better parents and, and the love I was shown and everything. But, you know, we couldn't afford to go on these holidays that, that people in my class went to. We couldn't afford to go and watch WWE or, you know, even go. I, 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 was, I was talking to my wife the other day. We we're talking about Toys R Us. I'd never even entered a Toys R Us store. I think it was probably from fear of um, my mum not being able to afford the toys and not wanting to disappoint us because my son goes into like for example smith's toys now and he walks away with whatever he wants because i'm a sucker for a cute face right <laughs> but, um, but you know i never got any of that stuff but i got pro wrestling and because of that it gave me something to live for right and so to me like even the small shows around the country do not let yourselves be dismissed and even those you know 
don't be fighting with people who say that you know you, you that Brit Res is dead. You know, you up up and coming young wrestlers who work these little working man's club shows or these family shows that don't get the the press that some of them deserve. Don't be fighting people. Just feel sorry for them that they don't have that that attachment to a local promotion like that because so many people get that that joy of that attachment to that local promotion and it's not until you you know it's a feeling that can't be replicated so i I, i'm all for professional wrestling it doesn't matter you know it doesn't matter what type of professional wrestling it is and you know and, and the energy that is being bought i can't wait for new japan to be able to welcome back fans properly i can't wait uh, I love, I love watching AEW shows and seeing the passion of the crowd. Um, you know, I loved watching the, the reactions to John Cena and Roman Reigns on those first WWE shows back, you know. Um, I just love professional wrestling. Um, and, and, and I say for anyone who feels bitter about it, for anyone who doesn't enjoy it, for anyone who, you know, it's just like, oh, why do I bother going to this? Just remind yourself of why you became a fan, you know. Um, that's all I'd say. And and if you have the opportunity to take a trip, wherever it is, take that trip. Because again, you don't want to be taking this stuff for granted. Um, you know, I promise you, I will get you big New Japan Pro Wrestling names back in Revolution Pro Wrestling in the near future. But you've got to promise me, everyone listening and beyond, to tell your friends and family you won't take it for granted when that happens because, you know, it's, uh, we, we will have those special nights again. And I believe the nights we have are very special anyway. So just keep coming to Revolution Pro Wrestling and support us and British Wrestling and your podcast and everything else. <laughs> the passion's coming through, Andy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, one plug from me, uh, John and Way made a big announcement on the show. Um, yesterday, the, uh, Brandon Thurston, WrestleNomics Radio is going to be joining the Post Network. So they'll be, he'll be doing a show every Sunday. Andy, you're a wrestling stats man. Do you keep up with, uh, rates and TV ratings and things like that? Absolutely. Every part of the business, I say, like, you can't be in the business if you don't study it. So, um, yeah, I, I look at the, the gates, I look at the, the TV ratings, um, everything, every aspect of the business I look at, um, including, you know, upcoming events and interesting to see how WWE versus AEW, I like looking at the, you know, what the indie promotions are doing. Um, one thing I do more than anything when I, like, any of my trainees go off and work a show. What was a house? You know, don't bullshit me. I want to know a real number. What was a house? Um, you know, roughly um, how big was the building? Um, you know, all the guys, that, any of the wrestlers that I speak to, um, you know, what, what shows have you done lately? What other houses been? Because you have to understand the business. Um, and I said to a lot of the all-star boys, you know, I said, you know, uh, please report back what, you know, what the houses are, because to me, that's the biggest, biggest indication of, um, you know, of professional wrestling to the general public um, and, and knowing if we've got some kind of hope of having a sustainable business. Cause really our goal is to, to, to transfer those casual fans across to hardcore fans. Um, and that's a, that's the goal. That's the want. that's what we need to be doing. So stats are very important as is watching your product, um, you know, and, and watching other products, anyone who, who watches other, who, anyone who works within the professional industry, professional wrestling industry, who does not watch other professional wrestling shows is a moron. Um, and I say that, you know, in the nicest possible way, but like, you know, so many years, people are like, I don't watch WWE. Why wouldn't you watch WWE? They're the people making the most money in the business. 
what can you learn from them and what can you learn not to do from what they're doing you know why would you not watch other independents like why would you not watch if you're in wwe why would you not watch the independents to find out you know to try and get ahead of the curve first of all but also to look at what talent is coming through you know um it works on the independents before it works on the mainstream national level um an international level like look at AEW you know that worked on the independents before it worked on that worldwide stage if WWE had cottoned onto that then maybe WWE would be in a different position than it is right now you know but um i just feel like perhaps this whole mess they got themselves into came from them being too involved with the WWE universe and nothing beyond you know um mm. it's a, it's a bubble and it's it's easy to get into but like i say study everything watch everything from the not just from the present but the past also so i love my stats from the past as well um but yeah i i i love it i consume it all so um i think that that's a it's a great addition to your podcasting network indeed it is no better man to break it down than brandon and andy thanks for coming on really appreciate it thanks for everyone for listening and uh, 